Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and if you are joining us here on YouTube, you can see us. If not, if you're just joining us via the podcast, you can hear us, but I have Ch Coach Chad Timmerman over to the side here. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing well. Hi, everybody. And we also have uh, Cannondale and Trainer Road's Amber Pierce. Hi, everyone. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. Uh, Jonathan, we have first yeah. thing, we got to say Trainer Road product manager and Canada athlete. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's the order. I think people, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Order. And also probably a lot of people listening to this, they may not know that it's not like we're a sponsor of Amber's, but Amber actually is one of our product managers here. Um, and working on some really exciting stuff that's right. uh, that we are excited to share with you guys at some point. Uh, first, firstly, I already screwed up. I was going to start off with the Carol Baskin. Cool, hey, all you cool cats and kittens, but I didn't. <laughs> so, um, but we'll fix this uh, just the same. If you're joining us now on YouTube, we have less latency this week. Oh, it says so hopefully it's it says no audio from John. Be a better podcast. Okay, well let's see here. Then I'm entirely screwing things up, but we'll see if okay. we can fix it up. John, you fix this, and I've got something to talk about. YouTube people, you tell me if you can hear my audio. Uh, there are some things said during Beers with Chad, which was uh, not very good. One of them, we talked about who was going to get the biggest FTP bump with the ramp test, which is going to happen live, what, not next this Monday, but next Monday on YouTube, probably. What time did we do it before? Like 1.30? Something like that. 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock p.m. Set the schedule right now. Uh, Chad, can you just say, <laughs> you're kind of inebriated, so you're out of your mind, but can you just say what you said on Beers with Chad? <laughs> Man, I don't even remember. Um, I think you're going to have the smallest one because I think you had, I think you're pushing up against a potential right now. It's not to say you can't grow it, but I don't think you can grow it in four weeks by all that much. But like I said, prove me wrong. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong about something like that. That's not what you said on Beers with Chad. No, but it is what I said when I followed up in a sober state. So <laughs> Chad said I was, I was doing so much. We talked about is who's going to get the biggest bump in FTP. Amber, have you been training consistently? I haven't stalked you yet I'm on not. Strava or Train Road. Uh, pretty. I mean, I've been riding. I training. I don't know, but I've been riding pretty consistently. Okay. Not very was, high volume. Just I'm enjoying myself. I, that does not make me vote for you then. But if you were trading, just because you were a pro, and people should know this too, we talked about this a lot, that if you used to be a really high level athlete, and then you take time off, you start training again and looking at a bike, and you'll get up there pretty fast again. John, do you want to say something again? Yeah, it, let me know if everybody can hear me. I've also, uh, I've changed a couple things here. Everything was changing live. We're figuring this out. We're in this together. Um, but hopefully everybody can hear me now. Yes, people can hear me. Fantastic. So, so. I thought Pete was going to get the biggest bump, but I think now John's, John's got some house stress and house moving stuff. Have you fallen off your plan? <laughs> Oh yeah. Like, uh, so actually it's one of the things that I wanted to talk about here with plan builder. So I went through and I actually pushed my week on, so you can go into calendar and when you anticipate having a week, like I'm having right now, where it's basically like you should have your own, I feel like I'm missing the opportunity to do my own YouTube, like home improvement show. Like I should be doing it cause I'm spending like 12 hours a day out there in the yard working and doing all this stuff. So uh, we're getting our house ready to sell. So I went, I anticipated this last weekend i saw it coming so then i basically just went through and i actually just pushed my week so the way that you can do that is you can basically like whatever week that you see coming ahead you can't do it to a week you're currently in um, but a week that's you know coming ahead you can push that week down and when you push that week that means that everything in your plan will be pushed down yes that may put you off but that's one option that i was okay with because today at some point 
USAC's going to announce what's going to happen with national oh. championships. Uh, so I, I assume that'll happen when we're recording live. So live chat, if you're watching, it would be awesome to have you guys uh, jump in at some point and update us once they've posted that. I looked just a half hour before recording here and it yeah. hadn't been posted yet. So, so biggest wattage because at that point I'll probably change a lot. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I, I'm not going to be fresh necessarily after this week, but man, I cannot wait to train because I haven't trained this week yet and I'm just eager to do it. So, so biggest wattage yeah. bump, John, who do you think? Me? Yeah, it's good. But then again, Amber might be, Amber might just be ninjaing on us right now. Like I mean, we have no clue. Let's be honest. Like if you, if you, if you zoom out to a long enough time scale, this is like the <laughs> ultimate taper. <laughs> very true she's very fresh very good point ever and you also have like the largest bank of like of like high volume and everything else that you've been pulling on so it doesn't take much for amber just to like skyrocket back up you know I, i'm 10 watts in front of pete right now and i think it might be pete although um he's had some life stress recently but like he's been joining group workouts with me and he's been upping his targets to my targets and doing it so that makes me think that he could get the biggest bump. Um, I not that it's I me or you, John. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I think that Pete like doesn't even want to join those workouts, but he is joining those workouts, and it's a mandatory lift of ten watts to match you because Pete just cannot get beat by you. Yeah. <laughs> On the last so interval, he usually ups it by like what has his target one more watt than mine. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would expect. Um, so if you're jo if you're joining us live. You can go right now and do the thumbs up. That would help a bunch. Um, if you are just watching on YouTube, whether it's live or after the fact, hit a thumbs up. That'll make a lot of people see the videos. And also, you can look in that description. If you're, uh, we get a lot of people that listen to the podcast and say, oh, well, I wish I could join you guys live, but I don't know where to go to see that. Go to YouTube. And if you look at this episode, which is episode 257, you'll see the link for episode 258. It's already in the description. Uh, so you can just go into the description of this episode and you'll see next week's episode. And you can click there and you can even set a reminder. And then that way you can get prompted uh, for when it's there and you can you can check it out. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, and we'd love to have you guys joining us live, but also through the podcast, all of it's great. You can also uh, subscribe to the notification bell because we have YouTube videos that are posted on our channel basically every week. So we're posting excerpts from the podcast, race analysis, quick clips, anything like that. Um, so you can check it out and it's basically like, a, it's, it's the best way to get faster when we're talking about YouTube channel. So finally, we're also hiring a brand designer. Uh, so you can go to trainerroadcom slash jobs to check that out. Nate, do you want to describe what that is a little bit? I know we described last week. Yeah. Uh, make things look pretty, but on the marketing, like <laughs> non-product side. So all that other side are pretty much our marketing team. You'd work directly with them. You'd be working with John a lot. Some of our other new marketing hires to really make everything that, that, the look of trainer road. Awesome. And get those applications in super fast trainer.com slash jobs because the hiring person, it's not me. He, he, uh, is a lot more on top of it than me. I usually wait longer to get stuff and he's ready for interview interviews now. So if you are just hearing this now, stop what you're doing and you want to apply, apply now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it'll be exciting because we'll be working very closely together uh, with the whole marketing team and, and this this individual. So uh, fantastic way. I also I looked somebody went onto Instagram uh, and you can find us, by the way, on Instagram. We have Coach Chad TR, Amber Malika, uh, TR Nate, TR uh, Jonathan. You can find TR dot Nate, um, but you can find us on there. And somebody sent me like a DM and 
Um, I get a lot of those and it's hard for me to keep track of them because I don't get notified if uh, the person doesn't or if I don't follow that person. And I had some people sending in like uh, resumes through there. That's not the best way to do it. Um, The best way to do it is to go to trainerroad.com slash jobs because there's no guarantee that I'll I'll see that Nate, Amber chat or anything like that. So best way to do it is through slash jobs. Uh, But we're happy to chat with you there on Instagram as well. Um, So uh, beers with Chad next week when I was fixing the sound, did we talk about this? I'm not sure if I, if I missed that. Nope. Uh, it, it's back last week. We went long. It was like Leadville long, like too long in my opinion. I don't know about you guys. We got, yeah. we got drunk too. It was <laughs> you, you not a happy have, Saturday. There's, there's no such thing as too much beers with Chad. Let's be honest. The, the intensity, <laughs> the duration intensity. Too much beer in Chad. This was like a 0.7 <laughs> IF workout. We need like a, a 1.05 within 20 minutes and then just call it good. Agreed. Agreed. Can we, Nate was can a we develop sprint. a TSS for Beautiful Chad? Like, can we, can we, I want credit. A new algorithm. You know how hard those Saturday workouts are? Especially when we go an hour and drink three different beers with Pete. Oh, hey, yeah, that's, that that's sounds easy. One. There's like a Beers with Chad multiplier for the Saturday workout. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's there we go we need to factor that in uh yeah so uh, long form pete was on last week and i'm back this week so i'll be i'll be hosting with chat to reintroduce us to restraint <laughs> it'll be fun What's it'll be that? fun um so uh yeah it'll be a blast uh amber will be in the comments trolling away like always i won't be in the comments uh trolling away i also won't be panicking about things going off the rails uh, because i'll be controlling it but i won't control it too much i'll let it get out of hand people don't worry so uh with that said too a few things uh folks should absolutely go over to trainerroad.com slash blog it's awesome uh or actually if you just search blog because that url may be changing uh soon but if you just search for the trainer road blog you'll find it we have some awesome articles that are always being posted by our different uh different writers that we have on staff So Jesse put together a post that's been getting a ton of traction. It's been super popular and it's called sweet spot training, everything you need to know. And it's basically a front to back on the the science behind sweet spot training, how to execute it more effectively, what it does for your fitness and performance on race day. And it's funny because when we were talking about this article and kind of coming up with brainstorming for it, I mentioned the fact that sweet spot, the sweet spot zone, you spend so much time in there in a given race. And it's funny because a lot of people don't realize that and they think that it's basically all off or all on because in those moments when it's all on, we subconsciously glance down at the power meter and we're like, oh, look at me flexing to ourselves, right? Because we see the big watts. But then during the times when it's easy, we can allow that diversion to focus and look at that head unit and we're like, oh, it's easy. But if you're really racing productively, you're going to spend a ton of time in that sweet spot zone. So it's funny. A lot of people talk about sweet spot being used just for base training and that's it. Sweet spot is going to be used on race day. And that's why you'll notice in a lot of the plans that there's still sweet spot training sprinkled throughout the plans, even in something that's more short, uh, duration, even something that's more long in duration. So it's a super great post and it's kind of like a full guide for everything you need to know. Uh, the other thing that's been posted up there is Wahoo outside workouts. So Megan wrote an article all about how to use your Wahoo element and it works on the Rome, the bolt or the traditional element and how to use that to be able to do your outside workouts, which basically you take trainer road workouts, you go into the calendar, hit outside, and then it pushes it magically to your head unit. It's so darn cool. 
Um, and Wahoo has some cool stuff that Garmin doesn't have. They're different. I'd say it's hard for me to say one is better than the other. And I know you're thinking that I'm trying to be diplomatic, but I'm not. I've used both. They just have their quirks and they have their perks. And one of the, the perks on the Wahoo one is you can arrow back and forth through the intervals, like right there with the buttons, which is handy. Um, and I learned this week on Garmin, which you can do is swipe over to the Garmin workout screen, swipe up. And when you swipe up from there, then you can actually restart intervals and view where you're at in your intervals. So if you're not doing your workouts outside, not sticking to your plan, you're going to get slower happens. Like we see that all the time, right? Nate, like people say, like I was super fast with you guys in the spring and then I suspended and then now I'm slow again and they come back and then they get faster. Might as well stick with it. It's not just uh, anecdotal too. It's in the data. Uh, I want to like publish something on that, but I want to make sure the data is unreproachable. We've talked about this. Um, and there's so many things to like remove <laughs> elevation changes for power meters and miscalibrated power meters. And like, there's a million things or people switching power meters to make sure the data is just perfect. But I have something else to talk about because Thanks. sorry, John, uh, Chad, this is for you. I've, there's all this beers with Chad kind of talk. I saw this on Instagram. I don't know if you know about it, but it, this is something you can put on a wine bottle and you push a button and it's like a soda fountain for your wine bottle almost. So it keeps it sealed and then it like, it pumps the wine out in this little dispenser. So you just be like, and it like aerates it when it comes out and you can just do whatever pour you want, but then it stays sealed. And yeah, no, I've got, I've got a few devices that do something similar, but not ones that seal and allow me to pump stuff out. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I think you should just on a beers with Chad. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more your realm than mine, but okay. <laughs> that's, that's Nate's gold pig. sprint intensity. <laughs> yeah, uh, my, yeah, exactly. It comes on Sunday, so I'll let you know how it is if you need to buy one. Okay. But it looks pretty cool. I saw it on TikTok, so it's probably pretty right. awesome. <laughs> Nate is, a, is officially addicted to TikTok. If you looked at Nate's Instagram this weekend, you would have seen this pretty sweet TikTok dance his whole family did. It was amazing. And it was brilliant. Yeah. We've been practicing. We have like Corey. So my wife, she did dance her whole entire life and she taught dance as well through high school. So like, She's like so excited because she's picked a song. We've got choreography. The whole family's running through the whole thing. It's like, so you think you can dance in our house right now. Is so. it a, a TikTok dance? Oh, yeah. Okay. Is 100%. it Savage? It better be Savage. No, it's not Savage. Okay. It's not Savage. <laughs> That's Chad. That's Chad's. We'll wait for that. <laughs> Sarah wanted Savage, but she, she said, I, I don't think you're physically capable of that. So, so we're not <laughs> doing that. Everyone, John can dance. He's fine. You can do it. <laughs> I want to yeah, see yeah. Simon doing it. Oh yeah, he'll he'll uh, it'll be awesome. That's the key right there. So and Sarah will blow me away. She's actually good at dancing. So um, the last thing that we posted on the, on the blog is what to drink when cycling. So uh, and final thing along those lines, welcome to Sean. He's a new copywriter uh, on Trainer Road. Pretty awesome. Excited to have him. Uh, and he's already working on a great piece. And we're really excited. Uh, I think that a lot of people will will love his content that he's putting out as well. So. Exciting to have him on. Let's get into uh, Carissa's question. She says, a big thank you to my favorite podcast host for always teaching me new things about training every week. Five stars forever. Thanks, Carissa. You can leave those reviews on whichever podcast app you use. I have a really basic question that I thought was just a personal one until I asked my friends and realized none of us knew the answer. Can you explain the syntax of written interval workouts? For example, in 2 by 20 at 200, which is the number of intervals, which is the duration of the interval, and is it proper to put at the end or to put the power at the end in wattage or percentage of FTP? And how does all of this change when you have to declare a certain number of sets and or specific rest periods? 
Please help. Uh, Carissa, thank you so much. You're the real MVP for asking a question that I'm sure so many people have. And I definitely have this question too. Uh, so, uh, Chad, this is in your wheelhouse. So Carissa, I hope with the, within trainer road, when you look at the workout descriptions, I hope your question didn't come from there because I try to be pretty word, like pretty English, like there. Um, I, I know that when we do these to outside workouts, does that change? I can't remember. It might nope, it's the same. Okay, yeah. good. Stays the same. Yeah. So maybe you're hearing this out and about in, in any case, I try to cover this base because I don't want to be cryptic. I want people to know exactly what they're up against. Um, but just the same, let me, let me answer each one of your questions. So first off, it's, it's always, at least in the context of trainer road. And I think in most cases expressed in a percentage of FTP. So it's seldom raw Watts because raw Watts doesn't really carry across riders. Um, the basic intervals times time convention, and this is the most basic uh, workout description you're going to see is simply that it's the number of intervals times the interval duration. So a couple examples, one would be six times three at VO two max, and that's six VO two max intervals. They last three minutes each, and then it'll specify what percentage of FTP, you know, it's going to fall somewhere in the one Oh five to one twenty percent range. And then another example, and this is one that gets bandied about quite a bit would be two by 20 threshold. And that's, you'll hear that quite a lot. It's kind of a, a, a mainstay workout and it's two thresh, threshold intervals. So you're going to be riding, you know, somewhere around FTP lasting 20 minutes each. What the recovery is in between them will be specified, you know, with, with that workout. So it might be a two by 20 with 10 minutes rest. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the recovery intervals in a second. Then when you gets a little trickier, when you get to multiple sets of intervals, in which case you're going to see the, the number of intervals within the set. Well, well, first is the, the number of sets of intervals, the number of intervals in that set, and then the interval duration. So that sounds a little tricky, but if you think of a three by three by five at 95 to 105, that's three sets of three, five minute intervals, and they'll range from 95 up to 105. And then the recovery, you tack that onto there and it looks a little complex, but if you just kind of break it down, it's all pretty straightforward. Another example would be a three by four by three VO two max. That's three sets, four intervals each, three minutes, three minute long intervals. And then it gets super tricky. And I don't know that anybody would try to put this in words. I think this, you're always going to see things like these written out, but the trickier formats in my case, or in trainer roads case become much more word-like and less number-based as they get more complex and brasted, not braced. I was informed is uh, <laughs> a good example of this. It's three sets of 13 by 30 15s. And then I go on to explain it in words. So I'll actually spell it out and say three sets of 13 intervals where you'll ride hard for 30 seconds, recover for 15, and then repeat recovery in between the sets is three minutes, five minutes, whatever. Um, Jen Darm is another good example. It's a two by 20 minute sets of 30 thirties. Okay. Again, two sets, 20 minutes long each where you work for 30 seconds hard and you recover for 30 seconds. You'll repeat that 40 times. And again, I try to be really descriptive. The more complex it gets, um, with recovery intervals, that's very straightforward. You either have recovery between the intervals themselves, or you have recovery between the sets of intervals. So in the case of a simple workout where you're just doing like a six by three VO two max three R except I'll usually say three minutes of recovery between intervals. And it's just that three minutes in between each of those short intervals. And then a more complex three by four by three VO two max. You might occasionally see if I haven't updated it, but I feel like I've caught them all a six slash three recovery. And that means six minutes recovery between the sets, three minutes recovery between the intervals within the sets. So we'll, then, uh, we'll, we'll have to, Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Chad. No, just, I, I just want to make sure we got each of her questions up top. 
Yeah, uh, we, we, we covered them all there. Uh, and something interesting with this, I find, do you guys find this too? I, I take it or I take for granted being able to visualize my workouts that it's so nice to be able to see that in trainer mm-hmm. road. Cause a lot of the time I'll like, like good luck trying to break down Zalibu this way. Right. <laughs> like it's like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> it'd be really tricky. And that's like the sort of workout that basically is you have a hard start, but then just the hard start. And then after that you go through those reduced amplitude billets where it's like you're high intensity, but then you're slightly just below. And those may like the, the, the either work or rest may shrink or increase in terms of duration. So there's a bit of like laddering, so to speak within that. Mm -hmm. And it gets really tough to be able to lay it all out. It's just so easy to be able to visualize it. Uh, and that's the beauty of of indoor training really over outdoor training, because you can do all of this indoors or outdoors, but when you do it indoor, the structure is right indoors, the structure is right there in front of you and and it's handled for you because trying to keep something like Zalibu in your head would be, it'd be pretty tough. You'd have to be pretty familiar with it. Yeah. And outside workouts does a really good job of managing that because of the fact that it's all, like you said, it's all right in front of you. Like, uh, there's a difference between like, you know, even, you know, you can write it down and you can do it that way. That's okay. Um, but man, it's just, it's like a cheat sheet because it just reduces all that cognitive load that you would have trying to yeah. remember what yeah, you to have it, have it on your head unit. It's a whole game changer. I, I just can't imagine the days where coaches would tell their writers to go outside and do something like that. <laughs> I remember those days yeah. and I used to have to write stuff on stem tape to remember what to yeah. do. <laughs> so Nate, you were going to say something? Unit. Probably not important. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll say it. Um, yeah, no. I think I was, just, I was just trying to think in my head. Uh, I think we were the first ones to encode workout sex in an image like that for lists for looking up workouts. Before it was all text. Um, I was a before we we uh, started Trainer Road. I was like a, a dashboard information person at a Fortune 500 company and programming that. And I wanted to encode the information of a workout. And I also made it so that the FTP line is the exact same for each one. So it's scaled the same. So that was the thought behind that. Because a lot of people ask, like, why on Baxter is there so much black up above? Why don't you just raise the bar so it's the same? But if you do that, then when you compare two workouts visually next to each other, you can't tell which one's hard and like which one's tempo and which one's endurance. But by doing <laughs> with the way it is now, if you see Spanish needle, you're like, ah, oh, right? It's very easy to see <laughs> that that is a horrible, horrible workout compared to something like Baxter. And you can glance down without having to read any text. And what you can pretty much do is you can, I bet you with people that have used Trainer Road a bit, you could visually show them a workout and within like for like three seconds and they could tell you which one's the hardest workout pretty close and which one's the easier ones um, very, very quickly. And that was the idea behind that. So again, not important, but a little behind the scenes. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like whenever I send uh, to, I have some friends that have, that, that don't train on trainer road enough. Um, I'm looking at you and you know who you are. And whenever I send them, whenever I send them uh, pictures of my workouts, they're always like, Oh my gosh, I need to see my workouts that way because it's like, so, you know, so, so much more informative for them. Uh, it really is super helpful. So thanks for being a dashboards engineer, Nate, and, and <laughs> bringing that over. Uh, Steven's question. We're going to talk about some glycogen and some fueling in this one. It'll be good stuff. He says, regarding glycogen stores, are the glycogen stores found in muscles used only locally in the muscles in which they are actually stored? Or is it that glycogen is available to whatever muscles require it? And then his, he follows up. He says, if glycogen is available throughout your whole body, then would an increase in muscle mass be helpful in increasing your available glycogen? I.e., if I gain muscle mass in my upper body, will that help sustain me through a longer effort due to the increased glycogen storage capacity? 
So that's a, uh, awesome question. Uh, really good one. Uh, where, where do we want to start with this? Uh, um, <clears throat> let me address that first question and then it'll kind of bleed into the second question. So in answering are glycogen source found in the muscles only used locally or in the muscles in which they're actually stored, or is the glycogen available elsewhere? Um, it's, it's both kind of. So we have two main storage sites in the body for glycogen, uh, the liver and the muscles. The, there are smaller amounts, much smaller amounts stored in the kidneys and the glial cells in your brain, your red and white blood cells, and during pregnancy in the uterus. But for the most part, when we talk glycogen, we're talking about the liver and the muscles. From the liver, it's a, it's a diminutive amount by comparison to what we can store in the muscles. So we're looking at, you know, for an average size adult, and I think they pin that at somewhere like 150 pounds or what would that be like 70 kilograms-ish. You're looking at 100, maybe 120 grams, and this is free to circulate. It, it can go anywhere. Largely, it goes to the brain because the brain is a huge glucose hog. I mean, per cell, the brain uses a lot of sugar. Um, in the muscle, however, we can store a heck of a lot more. And in, in an average human, again, someone who's probably deconditioned or sedentary, four or 500 uh, grams of glycogen in the muscle itself. This is something as I've talked about in the past, as we've talked about here on the podcast is with training, also with diet, even things like your basal metabolic rate, they can all influence this level of storage. So it's very trainable. It, it adapts to training stress like a lot of other things do. Um, glycogen itself is stored in the cytosol. And that's just the, the, the liquid component or the intracellular fluid inside the cell. So we're actually talking in the cell, not in the mitochondria. So all the other organelles floating around in the cell, uh, glycogen's in there as well. And basically it's just, it's just chains of glucose. So you just link a bunch of glucose together or somewhere in the ballpark of like uh, 10, 12 glucose molecules and you got glycogen. Um, were you to dry it out, it'd be a white powder. So if you can think of that, just kind of floating around dissolved in the cells fluid, that's what we're talking about. But within the muscle cells themselves, mu muscles lack a enzyme called glucose 6-phosphatase. So that translates to there's no free glucose when it comes to, to, to muscle glycogen. So this, this particular enzyme breaks glucose down into what's a form of glucose called glucose 6-phosphate. And this is what's used in glycolysis, you know, to fuel cell activity, to create ATP, to drive muscle contraction, et cetera. And the pentose phosphate pathway, if you're familiar with that sort of thing. So basically once the glycogen or the glucose is stored in the muscle in the form of glycogen, that's where it stays. That's where it's utilized. There is some small, there are some small exceptions. Um, first of which, when we can't keep up with the, the, the pyruvate that's coming or the, 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 the mitochondria can't keep up with the, basically the glucose is coming in that pyruvate rather than entering the mitochondria becomes lactate. So we all know about lactate, where's lactate go? It can be shuttled to other muscle cells nearby. So, so there's a couple forms of shuttling in which case great lactate is reconverted into pyruvate back into the mitochondria. We're good to go. But a lot of that lactate, when there's an excess spills into the bloodstream, and this is how we can measure blood lactate because it's actually in the blood. Once it's in the blood, it can make its way through the circulatory system all the way back around to the liver and undergoes something called gluconeogenesis. And this is uh, one, pro one part of that process is the Cori cycle, or actually those two might be synonymous. I don't think so. Um, in any case, the, this lactate spills back into the liver. The liver transfers or uh, converts it back into glucose and pushes it back out into the bloodstream, which means it's again free glucose. So in that case, glycogen did make its way out of the muscle into the bloodstream, back to the liver, back to the bloodstream, and can be redistributed somewhere else. So yeah, that's kind of a workaround, but it's, it's not a tremendously efficient one. As you can tell, it takes a bit of time. So with all of this in mind, 
if you did increase your lower body mass, yes, you can increase your glycogen stores. You have more muscle mass, therefore you can pack away more glycogen within that muscle. And then, as I mentioned earlier, if you train the muscle via endurance training, it, it same thing, it packs more glycogen into, into the muscle so that you can do more endurance work later. When it comes to the upper body, however, pretty unlikely that that's going to benefit you as a cyclist, because basically you have to liberate that glucose, create, you know, just go through that whole cycle that I just talked about to get it back into the bloodstream, to move it to the lower body. So it's not likely it's going to benefit the rest of the body, especially if you're not utilizing that muscle mass. If you're just sitting on a bike, you're not going to be working those upper body muscles to a point where they're going to generate excess lactate. That's going to, you know, further itself to the point of the core cycle and get the glucose back to the actual working muscles. It's not likely. So in the case of like an XC skier, a cross country skier, or someone who's using a lot of upper body movement, or maybe even, and probably not, it's a bit of a stretch, but a cyclist who rides really sloppily or maybe over really technical terrain, there could be enough upper body movement to generate lactate to, you know, further that cycle and get it back to the, the leg muscles, but unlikely. So we should do curls. <laughs> Lots For of sure. curls. Yeah. It's yeah, the spin yeah. bike dance. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tricks out of by science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess to, to recap, it's part systemic, part local uh, to a certain degree, Chad. But in yeah. terms of just adding muscle mass with the intent that, you know, elsewhere on your body, basically hoping that that would be utilized, you need to be working that to a certain point so that it can actually liberate that glucose and utilize it and process it. And that's a good way to put it. I mean, part of it's systemic, there's your liver and part of it's local and that's, that's muscular. Cool. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I, in my mind, I have so many, like, uh, so many, I don't know if you guys have this too. So many like metaphors, uh, in, in, in ones that I can understand where I can kind of break down and understand the mechanical nature of what, how everything works in, in our body. And that's a cool one. That's pretty easy to, to think about too. So thanks, Chad. Uh, Phil's question. So Fred says for someone training for multi-sport, uh, during these trying times and beyond, should you stagger your recovery weeks or take them all together? In other words, should you have a recovery week on the bike while still going hard on the swim and run? or recover all three on the same week. Thanks to the great podcast and training programs. So I assume that the intent would be to basically like round robin your way through a recovery on each one of the three disciplines while maintaining on the others. Yeah. And logically that sounds kind of cool. It sounds like it should make sense. Physiologically it doesn't, doesn't really accomplish that. The, the idea here is if I put it in the simplest terms, you have work weeks and you have recovery weeks and ne'er the twain shall meet. The, the, the idea is to keep those separate because the body deals with stress in basically the same way. It doesn't really matter where it's coming from. So, and, and I should probably include the mind in that as well. So the term, and I've mentioned this before, but I wanna clarify on what it actually means is allostatic load. And this is coined back in 1993. Thank you, Wikipedia. And I quote, <laughs> it represents the physiological consequences of chronic exposure to fluctuating or heightened neural or neuroendocrine response, which results from repeated or prolonged chronic stress. It's a, it's a bit of a jumble, but basically what it's saying is that we have to balance our stress with our recovery. And to visit what we discussed last week, all systems ebb and flow. I can't think of any that don't. And the Paris parasympathetic nervous system has to at some point rebalance with the sympathetic nervous system. This has to take place on a routine basis because chronic stressors eventually wreak havoc. There's really no two ways about it. It can be <clears throat> chronic. It can take place over a lot of time. It can happen on a more rapid uh, time scale. So 
the, the well, well, that's, that's the gist of that. Second to that recovery is necessary for improvement. We've talked a hundred times that ad- adaptation takes place during recovery. It doesn't take place during the actual stress itself. And I, I, like I said, I, I get the logic of this and, and I kind of, if you think of it in terms of strength training, and then I'll try to relate it to endurance training, um, there, they do stagger workouts in strength training They're called split routines. So, you know, basically you work the upper body one day, you work the lower body the next day, and then you can just rotate back and forth while one recovers, the other works and, and it works until it doesn't until you do actually need full recovery. So it's tempting and logical to think that shifting the stress from one set of muscles to another allows those others to recover and it does to some extent peripherally so so locally right those muscles are recovering but centrally that stress is still there it's coming from somewhere so it's affecting you on a, on a wider scale and in endurance i see that it's equally tempting to think that you can shift between energy systems and allow recovery with you know maybe your glycolytic system because now i'm just working my aerobic system and then i'm going to go back to working my a lactic system and do some sprints, etc. But again, central considerations need to enter the picture. You have to look at the body as a whole. Hence the term, if you've heard, heard this one also is, is adopting a holistic view. And, and this basically means that you see various systems are not just a collection of separate parts, rather they all work together. And this is especially relevant when it comes to biologic or physiologic systems, because they're highly complex. We're not, we're not engines. Right. Like um, even if you're swimming, Versus running, you're using different muscles in different ways. Your heart's still pumping. Your cardiovascular system is still under stress. Your central nervous is still under central nervous system is still under stress in very similar ways, even if the action and the exact muscles that you're taxing are very different. Yeah, just I mean, just put it in terms of hormones. I mean, yeah. hormones are in your circulation regardless of where the stress is coming from. So that that would be a way to see it as a you know holistic or a central sort of uh, stressor rather than just a local one. Yeah. I, the way that I could think of this right now personally is me thinking that somehow, even though, so I'm not training this week right now, so I should just be fine and get back on the bike and be fast, but totally not the case because even though it's not endurance training, being up on my feet and, you know, doing the heavy lifting hard work of you know, all the landscaping and housework that I'm doing, that's going to make me tired. So it's not just like for multi-sport athletes, this relates to all of us. And it also goes into like scenarios, kind of like a, Uh, When you go on like a a hard work trip or if you go on a vacation and you're at Disneyland, something like that, once again, don't think that you're just, okay, well, I had a week off, so I should be able to come back and just be firing. You probably, it probably wasn't recuperative during that time off. Right. And the other direction, saving a bunch of to-do lists to, to really, you know, to, (laughs) for your day off or your recovery week is not a great idea because then you've got a different type of stress that you're introducing to the system. Again, systemic. Um, and this is some trap that I fell into during my, you know, my years of training, I would put things off until my rest day. Cause I'd think, Oh, I'll have all the time in the world that day. And then I would find myself so stressed off, stressed out on my rest day. Cause I'm trying to get through this really long to-do list. And I wasn't really recovering because I was in sure. My physical training load was really light on that day. But my mental and emotional and cognitive load was super high, and I just wasn't getting the recovery that I needed. That's hard, though. Like, you were a pro. Like, us average <laughs> people, when do we get yeah. anything done then? Because um, on the really hard days, I mean, you got to get it done before. You get, I guess, getting it done early in the morning. But I think maybe your point is, too, is like spread it out so you don't have it all lumped on one day or one week. 
uh, I mean, to recover. honestly, awareness is the first step. Just being aware of how much you're piling on yourself and how much you're maybe diverting tasks to a day where you're not training and just taking this, this holistic view that Chad's describing and realizing as soon as you start framing things differently, right? Like, um, everything I'm doing during the day is contributing to my load and I need to think about how, you know, I'm, you know, actually scheduling downtime. I mean, sometimes just getting it on the schedule and it's hard to do because that whole time you're probably thinking about all the other things you should be doing, but it's as important. And in most, in many ways, what it'll do is scheduling in that downtime will allow you to be more efficient once you're going back through to knock things off your to-do list. If you're really tired and you're carrying around a lot of cognitive load, you're not going to get things done as efficiently. You're not going to be as sharp. So in some ways, it's sort of like just investing in your capacity to do the things that need to get done. John had this. This, this isn't... Go ahead. I was just going to say, this isn't research-based, but I would suggest that this is why for non-professional athletes, we have recovery weeks and not recovery handful of days. Because mm-hmm. our recovery, having to balance you know, works, everything else that happens in life with our training schedules means that recovery is a very incremental process. Whereas with a professional athlete who can do the work and then really recover for a couple of days, they're probably ready to bounce back much quicker than someone who say has to take care of kids, who has to work a job, who has to balance all the other forms of stress in addition to the the training stress. Definitely. Uh, John had this on his Strava last week. So feel pity for John, but these live streams, (laughs) Uh, we're gonna have a system and it always seems to like, it's like 758 and the whole thing breaks and he gets this, this yeah. flood of cortisol and I'm there like, Hey John, did you try this? He's like, yes, I tried that. Just leave me alone. Like I'm trying to backseat drive him to try to help him. And that just adds to the stress. Sorry, John. Uh, but, um, he had the hardest workout probably on the plan. It was, it's like, I have it actually today. I'm kind of scared. It's 30 second sprint and then 14 minutes at uh, 95% FTP and you only get Look five minutes break in between. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a legit workout. Uh, I feel like this is a good way to win a race too. It's like you start a breakaway and then you hold. Uh, yeah. It also shows you, this is off topic, but it also shows you if you were to do that 95% without that 30 second sprint, it's like not a big deal at all. But the 30 second oh, sprint yeah. makes it so much harder. And that kind of shows you too, if you can kind of pace your effort or at the beginning of a TT, if you go out beginning of a TT and sprint like really hard and then try to settle in, it makes it so much harder. And I'm, you're almost guaranteed to go slower. Sure. Do a few pedal strokes to get up to speed, but not a, an all out 30 second sprint like this does. But anyways, he failed it and he, he actually is changing. You can speak to this, John, probably better than I can, but you're changing your training plan so that you know, Thursdays are always stressful or until this, <laughs> until we get this thing locked down, um, yeah. to not have your hard workouts after a very stressful day. Cause it makes it more likely that you're going to not achieve what you want to on those workouts. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Like what Amber said about awareness, that's like the first step. And I think that there's a, a strange thing with awareness in the us endurance athletes, cause we're so used to struggling because struggling like is the process of training very much. Uh, it's not like you're just supposed to be successful with everything that you do and it's just not difficult, but it's hard work. And we all know that listening to this, but sometimes we have this weird blindness where we just like, we kind of isolate everything outside of turning the pedals and we think that it's not there and we should just be able to perform and like every day we should be able to perform but it does have a real effect on us there's so many different sources of stress that we have so yeah I, i'm basically what i'm doing is usually thursdays 
were always the hard or Thursdays were pretty tough. I, I pack a mid volume plan into Monday through Friday. And then what I do is I, 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 on Saturdays, I'll usually add on locally. We have a drop ride. That's like a hard race simulation sort of effort. Um, I race on Saturdays many times. And then if I don't, then I go out and I do very specific, uh, specific work or very in specific work. Saturdays, like my choose your own adventure day. Uh, regardless, I try to make sure that I don't go above 250 TSS. That would be like a, something that could really blow me out of the water if I'm not careful with it. So, but that's how I manage my plans. Uh, and my easy days have been Tuesdays and I need to shift that. So I'm pretty good with blocking those five, even six days in a row and being able to carry through that. It took a long time to get to that point, but now I think that I just need to reshuffle it. And that's another cool thing. Uh, you know, here's a plug, but for calendar, cause I can just go through in the training plan. And if I edit my calendar, I can make it so that that easy day, it'll show up on my training plan. I can shift that around in my week. So then it just makes every, I don't have to shift it, you know, week by week or day yeah. by day. It'll just make that change across the board. I switched it so I have Saturdays off and that's been for my family, an amazing thing. Uh, like for busy people, it's, it's life changing to have Saturday, wake up, be able to eat breakfast with the kids and then just play with them all day long and be able to be theirs. So I, now I have a question for Chad and then I have a question for Amber, uh, Chad, what Jonathan just said, um, about having this Saturday. So it's the day before his rest day. I kind of really like it what he said about doing choose your own adventure where he does either a race, a race simulation with a drop ride, or like I've seen him do big gravel or mountain bike races. For me, this is like a, I think it like keeps Jonathan fresh and motivated because he's always got like, like, oh, I do all this training. I have a reward on Saturday and Jonathan really likes to race. So doing those kind of either a real race or race simulation. Um, and he has a governor about how hard he's not going to go so much TSS where he's going to blow up his next week. Um, I know he's missing a structured workout, but I'm thinking long-term, if this is what keeps John training consistently long-term, he's going to be ahead. What, what do you think about that? I completely agree. I think just providing him with a weekly incentive and one that's very much in line with the way he races, what he looks forward to about racing. I mean, it's nothing but motivating. And I think he's sharp enough to recognize that if at any point it becomes too much of an addition to his training load or if he's over overdoing it, he'll he'll be he'll have the presence of mind to cut back and, and tweak it a bit. That's a good point, too, is that so our drop ride when John does it. John is not sitting in and waiting. He just attacks as many times as he can. He tries to make it like a cross-country Olympic race. It's pretty annoying. Unless unless we both have like the same jersey on, then I'm like, I, I can't chase him. Like, you guys chase him. And everyone looks at me like, why don't you chase him? I'm like, I can't do it. And then I can hang on a lot longer when he does that because everyone else is tired. Uh, Amber, question for you. We talked about like central stress and stuff. Okay, I'm right now I'm on a three-week-on three high-volume, short-power build high-volume and some extra training. I'm on my last week. It is Thursday. I have like three hard workouts, really two intense and then one long sweet spot. I'm starting to feel like almost sick, although I've not seen anyone, so I'm not sick. I'm thinking that I'm getting to that state that Chad just said, where like my, I'm too, the central stress is so much that like I'm inflamed and that sort of thing. Did you get that before your recovery weeks? Like normally I would just think, oh, I'm getting sick and I would stop training. But because of this whole COVID thing, did, did you get that where you would feel that century? Like my, my throat's a little inflamed. Uh, I'm a little bit achy and I'm tired. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And I think that everybody responds differently to that kind of like to getting to that point. So I wouldn't say that I had those exact types of symptoms, but definitely I would get to that point where I just, 
I, the way I always referred to it was sort of like, I'm nearing the end of my rope. Like that was kind of how I would communicate it to my coach because I was just, you know, this is, I can tell that I'm really starting to push the edge of, or I, I'm starting to, to scrape the bottom of this hole that we're digging here. <laughs> and yeah. maybe we're going to need to get, um, maybe we don't want to dig this one any deeper. And it's really important to start to be aware of those things and how your body responds in those moments. Um, because there are, you know, it's a fine line. You know, you don't want to, like, if you can push a little more and you do, and then you recover, you get that better super compensation. But if you're at that point where you really need rest and you push a little more, you might then be setting yourself up to need a lot more recovery to bounce back from that. Um, so it's, unfortunately, is this trial and error process, but yes, definitely I've been there and it's hard. And I think the, the thing that I felt like I could handle the physiological training stress a lot better than central nervous system stress. So uh, for me, like team camps were always really, really hard because in addition to the training, you know, it's not like being home where you can kind of like be grumpy over your morning coffee <laughs> and then, you know, ease into your day. It's like you are on, you're having to be social, you're interacting with media, you're interacting with sponsors and whom I all love. But at the same time, it's just, it's so much additional central nervous system stress to be on like that, to be socializing during your training ride from start to finish. And then even when you're done with that, you're doing team dinners, you're doing meetings. And it's just from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night. And it's usually for a week or more. And on top of that, you're still doing hard training or you're doing these photo shoots where they're having you climb some ridiculous mountain over and over again to get the right climbing shot or the right descending shot. <laughs> And that was the stuff that really, that was the stuff that would like really push me right up to that edge really quickly because the, the physiological load for me always felt like I could handle that. But when you add in the mental, emotional, cognitive, central nervous system stress, that was really where I would just like, it, it would push me pretty, pretty quickly to that point. On normal training week and you felt like you started to hit the bottom, for, this is personal to you. Uh, mm -hmm. How many, how how long would you kind of be in that phase before you would take recovery or like a recovery week or something like that? Um, toward the end of my career, I realized it was actually better to err on the conservative side with that. So if I started to feel like I was nearing that point, taking just an extra recovery day, you're missing one day of work, but you're allowing yourself to adapt to whatever work that you've done leading up to that point. And sometimes just taking that day is going to save you from from needing an extra week or two weeks. And again, professional athlete life, um, you know, different than having a, a rest week regularly in my plan. But I, I got more proactive about being on top of that because I felt like it was I was better off, you know. So maybe I could have pushed two more days, but I didn't. I took a day off. I missed one day, but there was the chance that I was then saving myself a week or two weeks of having to recover from pushing too far. So. I think that's not a bad idea, honestly. I mean, you're never going to lose so much that it's going to off. I think you just, you're generally in the end going to come out ahead with, with that kind of a mentality. But again, that takes getting to know your body. And we've talked before, I used to give myself the 20 minute rule. If I was really not feeling it, I felt like I was scraping bottom. I'd say, okay, I'm going to get on my, going to get on my bike, get kitted up, get outside, give it 20 minutes. And often by the time I hit 20 minutes, I'm psyched to be on my bike and I'm ready to rock. Um, and then there were days where I really still wasn't. And on those days it was like, okay, you know what? I gave it a shot. I gave it an honest shot. 
and I clearly need this recovery. And then I would go home and take the day off. And the hardest part is taking that time off and not racking yourself with guilt over it. But you really have to. I mean, at that point, you just, it's like you make the decision, you make it decisively. And this is, this is what I need. You embrace it. Don't rack yourself with guilt, then really embrace the, the recovery aspect of it. But you know what else is, is super hard about that is in so many cases, you get past that 20 minute window and depending on your type of personality or how good you've gotten at listening to yourself, you can make yourself get that workout done. Oh, it's yeah. still within you to complete it, to hit your marks, to feel like, okay, I can check that box. I did it. But at that point, it's counterproductive. And learning to recognize the difference between where you need to shut it down and when you need to push through is, is tricky, tricky territory. And then along the lines of what Amber was just describing, and and what Nate has described, he's talking about what I call and what a lot of people call the training flu. And and it happens after a hard workout, happens after a race, happens after a block of training. And kind of what Amber said, I, I won't carry it into the next workout. So if I work so hard that I feel flu-like symptoms, the next time I get on the bike, I know it's going to be an easy day or it's going to be an off day. So, so the next time I get on a bike and it's going to be a hard day, none of those symptoms are present because then I know I'm just taking that hole that I've basically already bottomed out in and trying to dig it even deeper. Yeah. But I, this is a, this is a good point to on Saturday. I had this exact scenario. So, uh, as you mentioned, Nate, I failed that workout and then I came into the next day and I wanted to go out and, and ride and I actually wanted to go out and do a structured workout. And it was going to be like, uh, basically it's like a two hour sweet spot workout. So it was going to be pretty tough. And I had a spot where I wanted to do it and I've been riding when possible, when the workout structure allows, because it's safe here or it's deemed safe and, and socially acceptable and legal to be able to ride outside right now in our region. Um, so I've been trying to up the specificity of getting more time on my mountain bike, uh, doing outside workouts with it. So I had this whole plan laid out to do it. And it was funny. Like I just couldn't muster the courage to go do that workout. And I think that happens to all of us. Like Instead, what I did is I just went for a ride and I thought maybe that'll feel better. And you know what? It's interesting that you mentioned this chat because when I was going up, I was like, my legs genuinely hurt. <laughs> and it, and it's really from, you know, adding in all this other life stress. So full circle callback here going into everything else that's going on, but my legs were hurting. But the thing is I was still capable of riding. And I basically said like, I just want to see as little time as possible below 300 Watts, just to kind of stay there and see what we can do. And, and with that, I was able to do that way further than I thought I would have. And it wasn't productive though. And that's mm -hmm. why after that workout, I realized at the end of it, I was like, yeah, I could probably, you know, absolutely just, you know, make this a horror show getting through the rest of my workouts here mm -hmm. for the next week, but I might as well make a change now. Uh, and recognize that it's probably going to become, if it's not already counterproductive. Yeah. And endurance athletes should give themselves due credit and recognize that over time and maybe even coming into it, but we're incredibly tough. We're really tough. I mean, we learn how to push up against walls and then, you know, just plow them down, push through them and we can do it. We have to do it on a pretty regular basis, both with hard workouts and then races and just the the consistency of it all. So we're really good at hurting ourselves and making ourselves just deal with that discomfort. But recognizing when that discomfort has crossed into unproductive territory is the is the big catch. That's the balance I'm trying to strike right now is the recovery comes in three days, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm just going to personally, I'm just going to push through it. And what I did to change it was yesterday I was supposed to have uh, like an hour and 45 minutes of an easy day, but instead I just made it 45 minutes. So kind of make the easier day even easier. And then mm -hmm. two, it's like two hard days in a row day off completely hard day, then recovery week. 
I can, I can make a great way to manage it too. Making the easy day easier. Yeah. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Because that, then that's tough to do for sure. Sometimes it's that simple. Easy day easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Often. Cool. That's a good discussion with this. I feel like, uh, hopefully that, that provided some help. And also it shows the fact that like, uh, you know, while Amber, uh, Amber being a pro cyclist, the rest of us three, uh, you know, we have, we have not been pro. So we're absolutely just like you in the sense that, that we are far from, far from perfect or ideal, far from anything like that. Uh, the whole, the training process is, is, is constant improvement, you know, which is uh, what we go for. Nate, go ahead. Yes. Uh, something else that Amber said, and this is for the brand designer project or role. Uh, we are doing a trainer road training camp. Uh, it was supposed to be actually like almost this week or next week, right? And the weather uh, is in three weeks. The weather yeah. is perfect. And weeks. the idea is all the riders who, if you, you got to be able to ride like 60, 80 miles, not just, you know, a couple of rides inside, but they're all going to, we're going to fly them out to trainer road headquarters. Company's going to pay for it. And we're going to do a week long training camp with just trainer and employees. John's got all these like 80 mile cool routes around Reno and Lake Tahoe and uh, where the death ride is. And then we're having our admin ride SAG for us. And like, give us bottles. Drive sag, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Drive, yeah. In a yeah, right, right sag. <laughs> Just e bike. Um, yeah. But that's one of the many perks for working with Trainer Road. So if you are a cyclist, um, hopefully that just puts a little cherry on top for you to get your application in soon. For sure, yeah. It's going to be a blast. And since uh, because of the the lockdown situation and obviously COVID and everything else, we've pushed it to an undetermined date. Mid August. That may actually open. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that may actually even open up more routes that we couldn't ride before because of closed roads. So that makes it exciting. Yeah. So it'll be a blast. Uh, okay. Avery's question says, uh, she starts off with saying, just breathe with an exclamation point. Uh, she says, meditating and mindfulness and breathing all seem to be a hot topic right now, <laughs> but what is most of, what is the most efficient way to breathe? It seems like inhaling through your mouth will bring in more oxygen because the opening is larger than your nose. However, I remember my marathon running sixth grade teacher telling me 20 years ago when we were training for the jogathon that it is best to inhale slowly through your nose and exhale out your mouth. I've seen pro riders do TTs with nasal strips and menthol plugs up their nose during warmups. And I often have a lot of time to think and focus on my breathing while climbing slowly, but I'm wondering what is the most efficient way to do this while doing sweet spot efforts to max out sprints. Uh, thanks and enjoy the seemingly cleaner air during this lockdown for sure. Yeah, it seems clear, uh, for sure. So, uh, first things first, before we get into, <clears throat> cause so breathing, we've got a lot to cover on this one. It's going to be, uh, we're, we're going to cover lots of stuff, but first things, uh, the first thing that you should know, Avery is to go to episode 187. And in that episode, we covered nasal breathing in more depth. We won't cover nasal breathing directly here since we've covered it previously in that episode. However, uh, we'll touch on it. And it's fair to say that we, we talked about like different products that exist to try to promote nasal breathing and then also the science behind it. Uh, Chad, maybe, uh, do you want to kick us off with this and maybe we can yeah. just kind of like rehash basically kind of like the basics of where that bottleneck starts. Dude, you have like yeah. seven pages of notes on this. This is crazy. <laughs> you should see Amber's. Okay, so, so Amber and I are fully yeah. gonna. We're both gonna hit this one pretty hard. Very excited. Um, and in the, in the true spirit of chivalry, I'm gonna go first. So I'm actually, and I think it makes sense that I go first because I'm gonna kind of take a step back. Uh, we've talked too many times about how it's not just about getting air into the system. You actually have to be able to utilize that air, and there are a lot of things that have to be in place to do that. 
one of those things, well, actually not one of those things. This is kind of removed from that. We've never really discussed this too much because honestly, I didn't think the science was there. Turns out it is. And it's, it's uh, come about maybe over the last uh, eight, 10 years. So I want to talk about respiratory muscle training. Um, and then I think that'll probably kind of pave the way or at least you know, create a basis for where Amber's going to take it from there. And I also want to say that, that, that there are a lot of directions that we could have taken this discussion. And those are things I want to talk about <laughs> later too. There's, God, there's, there's so much fruit to be picked here. Um, to begin, so respiratory muscle training, the, the assertion is that the respiratory muscles fatigue and that this fatigue is performance limiting. And in the past, I would have said, no, that's not real. But mm, turns out it is. It seems to be, it's pretty backed as well with, with uh, some pretty solid research. So when it comes to the respiratory muscles, we basically have primary and auxiliary. And auxiliary could just as easily be termed secondary, almost uh, comp compensatory, because they really shouldn't be utilized as often and as in the way that they are. The primary respiratory muscles are your diaphragm, your intercostals. So, so the diaphragm is basically, it's kind of like an old upside down, excuse me, upside down bowl that's stuffed under your rib cage, you know, kind of almost shrouds your internal organs. And then the intercostals, and those are just the, the muscles between your ribs and then abs and obliques. And that's pretty general because it gets really specific. And if you know all your muscles it could give you all those terms, but you, you can look it up just as easily as I can recite them. The diaphragm is the most is the most important muscle in this in this whole picture. And while it is mostly involuntary in that we don't have to think about breathing, it is still skeletal skeletal muscle. I almost said skeletal. It is skeletal <laughs> muscle in that we can control it. So we can decide, you know, how deeply we breathe, how frequently we breathe. We can alter that at any time. It's 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 you know, when we work, yes, that is kind of taken care of for us without conscious thought, but we can change that anytime we want to. So it is involuntary but also voluntary. And then the auxiliary or secondary muscles, that's kind of the, the top of the body. So if you think of the neck and the shoulders, these are the muscles that most people utilize to breathe these days, which is why we breathe so incompletely. And there's 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 a reason they've taken over and won't get into that too much, but uh, actually I will in, in a little bit. So let's first talk about the, the role of the respiratory muscles. Nonstop movement, never gets a break. It's, it's like our heart. I mean, these, there are certain things that can't stop doing their jobs. Otherwise we have some pretty serious issues pretty rapidly. And over the course of a day, they pump a lot of air in and out. I'm not concerned with carbon dioxide, oxygen, it's just a lot of air moves, moves in and out. So the inspiratory part of it or the inhaling actually contracts these muscles. So it's considered the active part of the process while the exhalation is the passive part of the process. And they attribute that to the, the elasticity of muscle. You know, we, we contract it and then we relax and that elastic aspect of it helps us, um, it basically carries the exhalation for us, but we can in fact exhale very actively if we want to. Uh, inspiration has effectively become passive and it's due to the fact that we've neglected our breathing muscles and, and that I attribute. And I think a lot of experts probably do as well is that once we get past childhood, we're faced with pretty nerf lifestyles, right? To, to draw from the office. It's, it's, it's cushy. We don't have to do too much. We're not as physically active as we used to be. So the emphasis has shifted off of these primary muscles to the auxiliary ones because they are the path of least, least resistance. They require the least uh, energy, the least muscular recruitment. It's just, again, the path of least resistance. So we've effectively shifted from this, what should be horizontal or it's termed circumferential or more specifically abdominothoracic, because we're talking the midsection of our body, the central chest cavity 
toward a more vertical or apical, apical, I suppose it would eh, probably apical to, or, or more specifically, let's go with that thoraco <laughs> cervical. So now we're upper chest and neck. And the problem is the bulk of the lung tissue is in our abdominal thoracic cavity. It's in the lower part of our cavity. It's, it's, it's in our trunk basically. And when we simply rise our shoulders and create tension in our neck, these are dead giveaways to the fact that we're not breathing circumferentially. We're not, we're not using the bulk of the lung tissue. We're only using the upper portion of it. So effectively we're, we're shortchanging ourselves with minimal lung involvement. And, uh, a lot of the information I've gotten, a lot of the information I'm going to share is from a book. If you're interested in, in this particular topic called breathing for warriors, I've read a number of books on, on breathing mechanics in the past, never been particularly impressed with them. This one, however, it's, a uh, it's ringing some bells. I'm really enjoying it. It's written by uh, Belisa Vranick and Brian Sabin, if you're interested. And one of the things they talk about is that each endurance sport and really each sport, but each endurance sport in our context has its own breathing nuances. Um, if you think of rowing, if you think of swimming, if you think of running, if you think of fighting, mixed martial arts, boxing, these are all, whether you recognize it or not, very endurance oriented. And, and they all have their particular ways where they, they break it down into quadrants. You know, you can breathe with your belly, you can breathe with your, your sides or lateral, or you can breathe with your back. Ideally, all four are available, but in the case of cycling, we use the front of our body to basically support our posture on the bike. So those muscles can't contribute as much to the breathing process as they would if you were just, well, if you were laying down, if you were recumbent, or even if you were just standing or doing something more basic. So they have a, a postural role to play as well. So for that reason, I do tout belly breathing and you can belly breathe to an extent, but a lot of our breathing also needs to take place laterally. We need to be able to expand our midsection laterally and we need to be able to breathe into our backs. And there are a lot of limitations that prevent us from doing these things, you know, muscle tension, lack of innervation, I mean, unfamiliarity, familiarity with what's required to be able to use our breathing muscles effectively. So, and this is kind of a fun side note, but um, if you've ever been faced with the dilemma, I, I know when, uh, and this happened a lot in CrossFit, but it can happen in bike workouts, et cetera, where you're just to the point where you're so tired that you just lean down on your hands, or, or I'm sorry, you, you put your hands on your knees and you just lean over and you just huff and puff and try to regain control of your breathing. And in the past, you've had people say, no, stand up, put your hands on your head or no, you need to walk it off. Actually leaning over hands on knees is one of the most beneficial and quick ways to recover simply because you're removing that, 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 uh, other goal of, of postural support, your, your, your diaphragm, your diaphragm and those, uh, abdominal muscles are no longer responsible for supporting your posture. You're giving them a break so they can just focus on breathing for those few minutes to help you re-regulate your breathing pattern. I feel that, so I have noticed a change from when I started cycling to now, uh, for example, during our live ramp test, I was actually, uh, I was really trying to focus on my breathing. Cause that's one thing I find that <clears throat> I always try to remind myself to breathe early and often just like drink early and often eat early and often. Uh, because many times I, I don't breathe like I need to breathe until it's too late to be able to breathe that way. And mm -hmm. if I try to start early on making sure that I am, you know, uh, some might call it belly breathing, but what I've noticed is I'm much more effective at, and I can see this when I'm doing group workouts, for example, and I can see myself riding, but when I breathe, it's not that my shoulders are going up as much. It's that my, my, my whole like cap, like my, my trunk actually widens out. 
mm-hmm. when I'm breathing. And yeah, I kind of feel it against the back of my ribs almost and the side should. of my ribs. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. for, for that reason, that belly breathing is, is an oversimplification. I think it shifts too much of the focus towards just the front of the body, never minding the fact that we can expand our thorax in, in different directions. So this has been pretty eye-opening in that respect. And, and I often think of... There was a f- time trial photo of Lance Armstrong back in the day. He's in his time trial position and he, he looks downright chubby and he's as lean as can be. I mean, he's got paper skin, but he's thoroughly opening up that, that thoracic cavity. He's really breathing and you know, his performance kind of drives that point home, right? I was just going to say that, uh, and I remember Bradley Wiggins uh, f- uh, watching him and slow motion of him in the time trial position. And the same thing, when he breathes, it's like, holy cow, like his his trunk expands massively. And then he's able to to push that air out and then yeah, push wh- that air out. What's unfortunate about it is it's, it's not that aesthetically pleasing. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look athletic. <laughs> and a lot of people yeah. limit themselves simply because of that. I mean, I don't want to look fat on the bike, so I'm going to keep myself drawn in and tight. And, and I want to draw that support from my midsection anyway. So this is all in line with what I think I should be doing. You know, maybe not. Yeah, this we is, get um, in this okay, habit so, of, of sucking in, right? And it's just totally like, it, in so many counterproductive. <laughs> yep. This is yep. more anecdotal, but I've always wondered about that with Chris Froome because he has the high when he's climbing, he puts his elbows out really wide and it's not yeah. very, uh, it's not arrow and it doesn't look good, but just try that on your next, uh, indoor workout for a hard session, put your elbows really wide so that you can really breathe deep and see if there's anything, if you think there's a difference. Uh, I, mm. I have no science to back that up, but I always wonder if that's why he does that or if it's just <laughs> natural, like anyway. he just, he has just found it naturally that he can breathe better if he's got his elbows out really wide. Mm-hmm. Nate, do you feel the, I mean, once again, anecdotal, no science, but do you feel any change? Uh, I know, I noticed that I do it more naturally if it's really hard, like again, it's group workouts. Cause I see myself now that I open my mouth really big and I put my elbows out wide and I kind of sit up straighter, uh, to, to like breathe in deeper, but I don't know. It, yeah, it could just yeah, be, I, I like to sit up more. I don't know. I just think you're advocating that everybody should ride more mountain bikes. And I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wide bars, elbows out. <laughs> cool. Sorry, Chad, we've derailed you. No, no, no derailing. In fact, uh, the studies that I'm about to cover, I've got four of them. So bear with me, but I think each one of them has a really, really salient takeaway and uh, possibly, uh, will will further a bit of discussion. <clears throat> so as I wrap each one of these up, feel free to chime in and we can talk about each of these. Uh, each of them do convey their own separate points. So I'm not, this isn't just a bunch of driving the same point home four times over. So first study, respiratory muscle training and exercise endurance at altitude. This is a 2016 study. And while there were four authors on this paper, one of them was named Quackenbush. So I'm going to credit Quackenbush (laughs) simply because that is a really fun name to say. Such a cool name. Okay, they <laughs> used voluntary isocapnic hypernia respiratory muscle training. Let's break that down. Voluntary, it's up to us. We control it. Isocapnic, they're looking for the, uh, even levels of carbon dioxide in the blood, in the tissue. Hypernia, this is the, both the depth and the rate of breathing are deepened. And then respiratory muscle training. All those muscles I just talked about, they're focusing specifically on training those. They use this VIHT, is the acronym, to assess possible improvement in exercise time at altitude. And in this case, they were, they were high. They were at 3,600 meters, which is roughly 12,000 feet. They uh, pedaled on an ergometer until exhaustion. And yes, tests to exhaustion are not my favorite way to test things, but they, they did this at a simulated altitude and all the while measured blood saturation. They measured a number of things, but you know, relevant to our context, the blood saturation. 
And what they found was that this VIHT did not change saturation, but it did improve maximal training ventilation by 40%, which further, which basically inspired, and, and I probably shouldn't use that word, which basically raised exercise endurance by 44%. And they attributed this to reduced respiratory muscle fatigue. Their, their breathing muscles didn't peter out. So they weren't the limitation. And the takeaway here is that the respiratory muscles can be trained to yield improvements in endurance capacity. And yes, at altitude in this case, but why not at lower elevation? Why wouldn't this carry? Hmm. That's interesting. And that, that's, I mean, that's something that just happens along with the training process, right? I mean, as you do this. Yep. And that's a closing, happen. closing point that I'm going to come back to. It's a very good point. Okay. Study two effects of inspiratory muscle training on time trial performance in trained cyclists as back in 2002, Romer Jones McConnell, they did a double blind placebo controlled study and they used a pressure threshold inspiratory muscle training device, a PTT is what we're going to call it. So, so basically it was just the inspiratory side, just the inhale. And it was a, a pressure threshold. So basically it, it maintains a steady pressure the whole time, regardless of your rate of breathing. Sounds like a CPAP. And then the Perhaps no experience yeah. with those, but it's okay. If you say so, <laughs> I believe you, I believe you. <laughs> and then, and then they, the, the other side of the study was a sham training control. So basically they, you know, they had a breathing device, but it apparently didn't, you know, it wasn't this uh, pressure threshold device. Um, so cover that. Okay. And then they had them do 20 and 40 K simulate, uh, simulated time trials. And they measured a couple things, pulmonary function. So function of the lungs, inspiratory function, the inhale and perceptual response to maximal incremental exercise, basically the ramp test, not the time trials. This was applied to the ramp test where they, that they used during testing to you know, set some levels for these riders. And the findings were that, that there were no changes in pulmonary function, but the experimental group improved their inspiratory muscle function and experienced a reduction in the perception of respiratory and peripheral effort. So both in, in how much their breathing hurt and how much their muscles hurt during the ramp tests. So not only did they recognize benefits to both the time trialing, but also the ramp test that they used to assess fitness in the first place. Wait, was there an outcome uh, increase? Yep. yep. So these writers also, the, the, the experimental group in the 20 K TT saw improvements somewhere between 60 and 90 seconds in the 40 K TT. They saw improvements somewhere between two and two and a half minutes. I want to know on this one, what, uh, pressure it was at, because that increases, like it makes it, it simulates an altitude change. If you have too much pressure, yeah, and that's, um, sure. so that it could be, a it could be that rather than just having the, the easier breathing. Mm. Fair. Yeah. Could be, could be. And the, the paper I'm linking to all these papers and these, I, I imagine Tucker will make these all available to everybody. Uh, most of them were downloadable PDFs. You didn't have to just look at the extract. Um, yeah, so the takeaways on that, Chad, you'll be able sure. to find those. This is episode 257, by the way. So you can just go to trainerroadcom slash forum and you can find it there. Just search for two side note on that. I was talking to someone who's a respiratory therapist and we talked about mm -hmm. using a CPAP to do that. So we'll, like we live at altitude to simulate uh, sea level or a little bit below by increasing the pressure in order to have like to do that, uh, train, train low kind of thing where you get maximum oxygen. Uh, but we, uh, I forget, we, we pretty much just stopped emailing. I don't know who started first and <laughs> it is not happening, but that'd be a cool, <laughs> that'd be a cool sports device. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So the takeaways from this altitude, uh, inspiratory training is, I actually have three of them. These are my takeaways, by the way. 
Um, the, the goal with inspiratory training is not to push more oxygen to the muscles. And we've talked numerous times about how it's only one part of the aerobic capabilities equation. Rather, it's to increase the endurance of the respiratory muscles. And yes, in this case, it was inspiratory, but the expiratory muscles can also figure into this uh, such that they aren't the performance limiters. That's what we're looking for. We're trying to pluck out one thing that is limiting performance and address that one thing. Um, secondly, the lungs are the priority. So the muscles suffer first. Basically, if you remove the breathing limitation, the lungs aren't as oxygen starved and therefore as acidic and painful. And three, it raises the question, can expiratory training it raises the question to me that I want to know, can expiratory training, the, the breathing out, the exhale further benefit training performance? I don't know that I, that I don't have an answer for just yet. Interesting. I, I thought so. If you, if you're listening to this right now and you change the way you're breathing, cause I'm sure you all have, <laughs> or if you're watching on YouTube, you're hereby mandated to give a thumbs up. If you change yeah. the way you breathe, so, everyone's manually um, breathing right now. I, oh yeah, totally. I've, I've completely changed the way, right? <laughs> this is honestly, I think it's good that we're, I don't know, the, the cameras are where they are now. Cause you can't see the belly pooch out. So I'm not as conscious. Cause I, I was just a profile in the podcast room. I didn't want to stick that gut out. Uh, I, okay, Chad, so. to your comment there, I, I wonder too, I did, and this is for Amber's history too. Um, not the first part I played tuba as I was like a music major in mm. college for five years, sousaphone, marching band, just all day long is just the deepest breath possible and then out all the way. And then at the same time I did swim team. So most of my life was huge breaths and then put it out. And I, I had a huge, mm. like my diaphragm power was crazy. And I wonder if that is probably, you know, held with me for a long time for so many years of high-end elite athlete training <laughs> of, of marching band <laughs> and concert band. Yeah, I know that's what I'm thinking yeah. too. Uh, that's everyone yeah. should play too. So anybody that, yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the moral of this story. Say. Anybody that bags on band players, take that. So yeah. they're going to drop you in their next TT. Well, if it's clarinet, it really uh, so, doesn't do anything. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so Chad, I don't know if you have anything more to add because there's kind of like a whole different side of this, right? Um, that we want to get into more on like the psychological Actually, effects and everything. I else. still have two more studies. So, so let me go through those. Okay. Okay, cool. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Oh no, I'm just yeah, getting sure. started. Okay. So <laughs> number three of four, I'll try to make it quick. The, the effect of inspiratory muscle training on high intensity, intermittent running performance to exhaustion. So yeah, we are talking about running, but we're also talking about intermittent activity, which is very applicable to not only cyclists, but specifically trainer road workouts. Um, this was Tong and Esten and colleagues, and they used inspiratory muscle training again. They used a pressure threshold device, and placebo used a device with minimal, pardon me, minimal inspiratory load. So they still had a device; it just wasn't it wasn't stressful, and they, they didn't know the difference. And then they used maximal 20 meter shuttle runs during what's called a yo-yo intermittent recovery test. And if you've never heard that before. It's basically go real hard, rest real short, go real hard, rest real short. So along the lines of Tabata, along the lines of reduced amplitude billats, along the lines of short, short. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about, which is why I found this particularly germane. The findings in the experimental group were that the inspiratory muscle function grew by greater than 30%. The yo-yo intermittent recovery test improved anywhere from 12 to 20%. So pretty heftily, definitely significant. And the rate of increase in intensity of breathlessness was reduced by anywhere from five to 15%. So the discomfort of their breathlessness of their heavy breathing improved pretty dramatically. On top of that, metabolic stress was reflected by basically exercise byproducts. So, so they looked at blood ammonia, uric acid, lactate, a lot of things, and these things were attenuated, reduced. 
So, which leads me to believe that there was greater aerobic activity, less anaerobic, and therefore less anaerobic byproducts. But so, takeaways. Go ahead. On that one, what was their performance increase though? Um, performance, they didn't relate it to performance in any other ways than that they recovered more quickly during the recovery, uh, okay. the intermittent yo-yo test. I always hate those because there's so many things that happen, but then when performance doesn't change, I'm like, yeah, what's the point though? Cause there's, I feel like in the body, there's always balances that happen. Like one thing gets yeah. better. Another thing gets better. Sure. Sure. In this case, I was just trying to find something that related to the, the, the recovery, basically yeah. recoverability. I mean, something that's very applicable to what we do, especially racing. So my takeaways are just one is that inspiratory muscle training can in fact improve our ability to make the most of minimized recovery time, um, especially during all out efforts, repeated all out efforts, which has, as I just said, some really carryover effects to racing and training performance. And finally, uh, effects of respiratory muscle warm-up on high-intensity exercise performance. So 2015, Thurston, Gal Thurston and Galpin are acknowledging that first, and this is their quote, exercise performance is partially limited by, limited by the functionality of the respiratory musculature. Training these muscles improves steady-state exercise performance. So these guys feel very strongly about this, and uh, again, the science backs them up. So they use respiratory muscle warm-up immediately before a high-intensity uh, session. And they, they compared the effects of low, medium, and high airflow restriction. Uh, the, so they're just going to term this RWU, so respiratory muscle warm-up. Uh, 11 recreationally active dudes rode at 85% of peak power, two exhaustion. Again, not my favorite way to test, but that's what they did. Four different times, four separate days, random order. And their findings that, that when taken as a single group, the time to exhaustion didn't improve following any one of these single warmups. However, when they looked at them individually, 10 of the 11 riders found one format that actually improved their time to exhaustion by at least 25 seconds. So it, the, the takeaway here is that there's no single respiratory muscle warmup across athletes, but there is some evidence to support that there, there is a format for each athlete that will benefit their high intensity exercise. I'm skeptical this on makes that. Me think of is that like, was that statistically significant? Cause there seems like there could just be noise if they do it four uh, times and cause there wasn't, you can dig into the paper. I mean, once they got to the point where they found the particular protocol, I mean, they put what, 25 seconds. So 25 seconds on, uh, geez, I don't even know. Just, just time to exhaustion. I can't remember what the, what the actual workout was, but again, if, if the paper's linked, if that's an hour long, it might not be you know, a, right. a huge thing. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. It could I'd be motivation driven on there, especially if it yep. wasn't correlated oh, yeah. to a specific warm up. Like that's like, a, that's why I don't, that's specifically why I don't like test to exhaustion. And I know there's an argument against using other, other methods, but why not? Why not those other methods? I, I don't, I don't remember why test to exhaustion are so popular. This makes me think of like, uh, so skiing, uh, I used to ski race, which by the way, when you were mentioning those like shuttle, uh, interval run tests, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, we used to do those <laughs> in dry land training and it oh, was yeah. terrible. They're, they're, they're wonderful like, though. They're so effective. Yeah. And, and we, <clears throat> I remember we were complaining about it on the basketball court. So our coach got sick of that and he made us do it on the football field. And oh my gosh, <clears throat> we had to do every 10 yards. And we had to work our way up all the way to the football field and work our way back yeah, down oh yeah, and then those days. repeat. Oh, it was terrible. So, yeah. um, but that makes me think of like when with ski racing, 
when everybody is in the box before they go, the start gate, everyone is always, you know, breathing out extremely loud. If you just, just turn on FIS World Cup and, and if you watch any sort of racing, you'll mm-hmm. see that. Like it happens all the time. You know? Yeah, the aerobic demand is tremendous. Found, mm-hmm. I found myself uh, doing that before um before definitely before enduro stages or before like a lot of races too i find myself like following a specific breathing or in specific breathing pattern but it's certainly something that i'm doing and it's almost like subconscious but i've never tried any specific breathing things like i know we've gotten questions before about like what about the wim hof method of of breathing Mm -hmm. and all this other and Mm -hmm. there's plenty of things that i haven't tested out um and and once again kind of to your point nate it's always tough with these studies like you really have to be uh, you have to take like a critical eye to all of them just because there are many things that could have inspired some sort of change if you're not measuring specifically like a performance outcome. Even with a performance outcome, it, it could change it as well. So, this was just a handful of the studies. There were actually quite a lot out there. I just t- tried to find ones that were relevant to what we do specifically. So the, I think just what's most exciting about this is that, that the research is there. The research is being performed. So this is something that's being looked at and it's been looking be, being looked at closely. Um, I do want to talk about devices ever so briefly simply to say that all four of these studies use devices. And there was a, a review on respiratory training devices, 2018, Menzies and colleagues. And really the takeaway is that they drew a conclusion based on five different respiratory muscle training studies. And simply note that fiber overload forces training adaptation, similar to that of any other skeletal tissue. So, so it doesn't matter what device you're using. It's, it's simply that devices or these muscles can be trained, whether it's done via devices or it's done via breathing exercises. So my interpretation is that, you know, if, if they have recognized in, in, in terms of both disease and morbidities, et cetera, that these breathing muscles can be deconditioned. So if they can become deconditioned, why can't they become more highly conditioned? Um, and, and then just to kind of steer away from the, ne- the necessity of devices. Again, that book, Breathing for Warriors, talks about a number of exercises. And over the last week, I've kind of been kicking them around. They're taxing. They're brutal. There's no device necessary. And you can really hammer your respiratory muscles. Okay, so let me close just, this out and turn this over to yeah. Amber with, with just a couple points. Um, sure. First off, not everyone's a candidate for respiratory muscle training. Some people have plenty, plenty well-functioning respiratory systems. Maybe they breathe well already. I've always been a rider who sails by other riders and I'm working hard, but my breathing rate is probably half of theirs. These, these riders sound like they're coming unglued and I'm suffering, but my breathing does not match theirs in any context. So I don't think everybody needs to address this. I think you got to ride with John and I more. Yeah, flex. I think it's, it's just needs flex over there with Chad. I heard some heavy breathing in Hawaii, Chad. <laughs> Be pushed to that point. And, and my point is, you can't operate at your respiratory compensation point. You can't push yourself to the point where you're huffing and puffing and basically panting like a dog and expect to stay there very long. Um, so, second point alone, breathing devices are not the respiratory muscle panacea. So you first have to learn to breathe properly, and then you can strengthen that breathing pattern and those breathing muscles. Otherwise, we're just strengthening the wrong muscles and missing the right ones. And this is it kind of bears some overlap or carries some overlap too uh, with, with strength training. We retrain movement patterns, and then we strengthen them. You get that order wrong, and, and you're basically working against yourself because neuromuscular communication has to exist before you can reinforce those movement patterns. Proprioception has to exist before you can make this action truly voluntary, and only then can we condition these basically dormant or, or neglected muscles. So certain infrastructure has to be in place before you can try to strengthen that infrastructure. I have another... Before we... Oh, go ahead, go, Nate. I have another thing that 
So I, I like to, I'm not saying anything bad about the researchers, what Chad did, but I just like to like pick apart studies, right? About things where we might get out of stuff. So please to comment or if I, if I'm wrong in any of this stuff, but for the that's, time, that's why we link to these studies. It's open yeah. for discussion. Well, this is just science in general, right? If any scientist is like, you shouldn't be asking these questions. Like they shouldn't be a scientist, but I'm thinking the one with the, um, the, the warmup for the, uh, before the exercise, you said it was like four different types and they did it in a random order and they did a time to exhaustion test. I know one time to exhaustion test is, is common is like right around threshold, like 95% of threshold. And then they just go straight. I'm thinking that if you did it in a random order and let's say you're a low volume athlete and then you do all out 95% four times. And then they're like, one of them, you got better. Yeah. I'd like to see if that was the fourth time. Right. Because if you, sure. if you do for 95%, as hard as you can on the fourth time, and you have a couple days in between, which I'm guessing they didn't do it back to back. Cause that would be weird too. Probably not. I'm guessing you're going to get a trading adaptation and that last one is going to have, and then that, that, and so the results was 25 seconds extra time, but at a, everyone was different, but if everyone was a random order, but, but you know what I mean? Like, could no, it just no, be a training enough. adaptation? I mean even the psychological boost of knowing that it's the last one. Yeah. Right. Like to dig deep. Also learning how to pace yourself better. Well, it should be a, yes. on that one, it should be a, uh, a set wattage. Cause I think they usually do is they take your VO2 max and they do a percentage VO2 max. And it's usually, I, I don't know this, I haven't looked at the study, but it's usually then equal to right around threshold or right below threshold, but just digging deep Amber, right? Like feeling like I, how many times do you finish that? And you go, oh, I could have gone five more seconds. Right. Mm -hmm. And you get it four times in a row and that's 20 seconds, but sorry that, yeah. I, I don't know what they did, but that, that's one problem with the, the ramp is different because the ramp is like, there is no extra time, yeah. but when you're at that like uncomfortable level, like you could always push just a little bit more at like 95%. Yeah. If the, if the incentive is provided, you can always dig for a little bit extra. I mean, it's, it's the difference between winning a race and missing the podium. If you just find that little bit extra and typically it's, it's more on the psychological side of things. What did you do at nationals, Chad? How much did you lose podium by? A fraction of a second. <laughs> Here I feel like there should be a hashtag for that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, one thing I want to just touch on devices really quick because I, I don't know if this takeaway would have been would have been understood across the board. Um, there are plenty of devices that can control some sort of breathing rate or have an influence over a breathing rate. However, it um, that doesn't mean that using a breathing device is going to make you faster. So like a good example for this, kind of like a metaphor for this or, or, or assembly, if you will, but basically it's like, so a lot of people, if they hear that, they might think, okay, well, I should train with a Bane mask on that restricts my breathing. And then as a result, I'm going to get stronger muscles. And then as a result, I'll be faster, but there's a point of diminishing returns that would effectively be like, you know, somebody just uh, saying that like, you know, I just need to, to lift weights really hard. And then as a result, I'm going to be able to pedal my bike better. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it makes you faster. And in many cases that restricted breathing that you may be undergoing while you're training may not allow you to train at a specific intensity that you should be training at to bring about adaptations anyway. And since it's already happening, I don't know if necessarily restricting or breathing restricting devices, because those are the most common ones that we see would be beneficial. Is that fair to say, Chad? Yeah, I, I don't even think it's a matter of diminishing returns. I think in some cases it's applicable, in some cases it's not. And again, the the certain things have to be in line before you can even start to train these muscles. You have to make sure you're reaching them in the first place. Yeah, and that's, and a lot of a lot of these devices aren't even targeted at improving inspiratory muscular endurance. They're looking at other things, or at least they're touting different things. Might just put it as blandly as improve VO two max, or uh, I don't even know how they sell them, but. 
they might be completely outside of the point we're talking about here. Yeah. One of Avery's questions is about the menthol strips thing. And Amber, I don't know. I mean, we, we've seen it with pro cyclists all the time. Uh, I don't know if you ever had any experience with this sort of thing, but like what the motive would be behind that, <clears throat> you know, just the, usually what it is is some sort of cotton swab or something and it's, and it's doused in some sort of menthol. And then as a result, and then it's pushed up the nose. Um, and then they do their warm up with that and take it off. Did you ever uh, mess around with that? Have teammates that did that? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I, I didn't, I don't think I, I tried tea tree oil a couple times. Um, and it just have gave me the sensation, I think of having like really clear sinuses, but I never had any particular issues that it, it, it solved. Um, I do know, I think what, what was it? Uh, we were talking to somebody who had some issues with rhinitis that, that, that is something that could help. That seemed to be oh. what cropped up most frequently as anyone who used the menthol plugs were simply looking to decrease rhinitis, which is just inflammation of the mucosal layer in the nasal cavity. So they're simply trying to get more air in through the nose or at least not feel restricted by their nasal breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it just feels good, right, um, to, to experience <clears throat> that. Um, but it's not any sort of like restriction to force them. So because I've heard the other thing is like, oh, well, it restricts you from nasal breathing, and then it forces you to breathe through your mouth, and then you don't get as much oxygen through your mouth. So then as a result, it ends up making you more. Nate's holding up something to the screen here I don't on know YouTube. If you can read it. <laughs> But for people, I'll try to describe it for podcast listeners. I, uh, but it's blurry. So, <laughs> for uh, people with rhinitis, this is what uh, uh, ENT gave me, and it is amazing. Ipratropium bromide nasal solution. It's a spray that you can put in your nose before. I get crazy rhinitis when you like my nose just runs when I work out, and that really helps. I also wonder um, if you're going to cover it, but Afrin, Afrin is you can't use Afrin all, uh, all the time, probably more than three days in a row, because you get like this rebound sensation. But Afrin opens me up crazy. And then I get allergies, so I don't, mm. I can't, I don't use it when I race at all. It's, it's counterproductive for me, but this stuff really helps. So you can also get addicted to this stuff, so you can't use it all the time. But, uh, anyways, that's, yeah. that's, I think this might be, if you have that problem rather than uh, just talk to your ENT about it and see if this is good for you. <coughs> it's not sure, like commercial. <laughs> see if it's right. <laughs> Someone else though did this, uh, a few podcast listeners said they talked to a doctor about it and, uh, I hope Tucker, please, please put this in the notes, but life-changing for them too. It's awesome. Hmm. With that, Amber, let's get into the other side of breathing, the effect. Like, you know, we've talked a lot about the physical side, the muscular side, everything else, but the other side. Yeah, I just, I, I think the question that you're asking, I think there's, there's so many different facets to this, obviously, and Chad's done a deep dive already, and I'm not going to rehash what he said, but, you know, the breath is a really interesting mechanism um, just as a tool that you can use for different aspects of your performance in addition to breathing in oxygen to help oxygenate the muscles. So um, two main ones that I wanna talk about, one is that it can modulate your arousal state. And when I talk about arousal, I'm talking about that psychic energy around um, creating an optimal performance state, like an internal mental state of mind that's gonna really be beneficial for your performance. And so an optimal arousal state is usually some sense of positive excitement, heightened awareness, um, you don't want to have the same state of mind that you have laying on the couch watching Netflix when you're lining up for a bike race. <laughs> you you want to have some. Um, I'll, I'm gonna. I'm just for the purpose of this conversation. I'm gonna kind of call it the the sympathetic ladder. So if you imagine at the bottom of the ladder, you're in your parasympathetic state, which is your rest and digest. You're totally chilled out, and then you move up that ladder toward a sympathetic state, which is sympathetic system being your fight or flight. You want to get into that sympathetic arousal. To the point of feeling that excitement, that heightened awareness, 
some site, um, some sympathetic activation activation kind of describe that as being psyched up. And then if you get too far beyond that and too much sympathetic activation, then you get into, you move past that positive excitement into more nervousness, kind of like negative energy. Maybe instead of being excited, you feel scared. And that's where you, that's where we talk about, you feel psyched out. And so one of the things that your breath can do is it can modulate where you are on that ladder. So if you get to a point where let's say you're, you're hyper aroused, your, your sympathetic activation is out of control. So you're feeling super nervous. It's that pre-race. It's, it's not a good feeling. You're not excited to race. You're, you're scared. You're nervous. You're shaking. Um, deep diaphragmatic breathing actually stimulates your vagus nerve. So you can actually purposefully change how you're breathing to move you down that ladder again and move you back away from too much sympathetic activation back into that sweet spot where you have enough activation to get you excited and aware and ready for the, for the effort ahead. Um, so the rhythm of your breath, that, that aspect of it, which is in your conscious control is something that you can use kind of like a dial to dial up or down on that ladder to get yourself into your own ideal performance mental state. Um, so if you tend towards anxiety, belly breathing can really help you dial back, which is a good thing. Not everybody needs help dialing back. Some people have trouble getting up into that positive, excited state. And then that's where, you know, you might be listening to pump up music or something like that. But if you're one of those people that tends towards pre-race nerves, a lot of anxiety, deep belly breathing can be a tool that you use to modulate that. And I'm guessing that this is probably the basis for the uh, advice that you were given about breathing slowly in through the nose. Because what that does is by slowing your breath, it's going to force you to take deeper breaths, which is going to stimulate that vagus nerve and bring down that arousal state. So I'm going to guess that that's probably why you got that advice at some point. Um, but again, this is a personal thing. Just know that this is one of the tools in your toolkit that you can use to help affect your performance by getting you into a good mental state. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if uh, this is somehow related to it. Do you guys get this ever? Do, do you yawn? And I know that this is a function, or at least I've heard it's a function of adrenaline. Do you yawn on the start line? Almost always. I, I get the yawns nope. like crazy every time, man, uh, every time. And a lot of the time I do feel like uh, I'm a little bit tuned out coming into a race. And it's probably some sort of subconscious thing of me probably turning away from that nervous energy that I'm feeling and I'm probably going away from it, <clears throat> but that breathing motion could probably bring me back in. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to apply that. It's yeah. funny when you were mentioning that Amber, it's like, yeah, somebody could be in that scenario. It's like, I'm in that scenario. That <laughs> might be me. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the uh, nice funny. thing is like pre-raised nerves. Usually it's a good thing. Cause you're getting into that, that excited state where you just have like it to me i always like i like to think of it as like ooh, this is that extra energy i get to use when i when i mm. when the gun goes off and i get to start racing uh but yeah it can be too much and i've definitely experienced both sides of this during my career and breathing was a huge tool in helping me get into that ideal performance state and then the other thing that you can use your breathing for that affects your performance is training your focus and when you mentioned uh when you were asking what's the, what's the ideal or most efficient way to breathe during a sweet spot interval. I immediately clicked onto this because I was thinking, Oh, sweet spot. This is perfect. A steady state effort on a trainer is a really, really good time to use your breath to train your focus. And I first, um, learned, I kind of got deep into this focus thing a while back. And I first learned about this, the different dimensions of attentional focus from Dr. Arnie Baker, who's a brilliant MD, coach cycling coach he's coached some uh, phenomenal athletes and olympians um but there's also a ton of really great 
research and literature on this. So if you want to dig into attentional focus, I'll just kind of do a quick overview of what this is and why it connects so well with the breath and why when you're doing sweet spot on the trainer, this is actually a really good time to work on this. So focus comes in many different flavors, we'll call them. Um, First, you have associative versus dissociative attentional focus. So associative focus just means you're oriented to the task. It means that your focus is on what you're doing. So on the bike, it can be anything to do with the fact that you're riding your bike. You might be focused on your cadence. You might be focused on the line that you're taking on the road ahead. You might be focused on the fact that you want to be drinking because you haven't had a drink in the last half hour. That's associative. Dissociative is when your mind is on anything but what you're doing. You're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner while you're riding your bike. You're doing a mental puzzle in your head that has nothing to do with your doing with what you're doing. That's dissociative. Then you have internal versus external. And this may sound really similar to, to associative and dissociative, but it's actually quite different. So internal is you're focused on internal bodily sensations. So let's say, and then external is you're focused on something outside of yourself. Um, again, this is different from associative and dissociative. So some examples, if you have associative internal focus, that might be something like you're thinking about the sensation of muscle fatigue. You're focused on what you're doing and you're focused on an internal sensation. Associative external, you're still focused on the task at hand. You're still focused on what you're doing, but you're focused on something outside of yourself. So that might be something like you're focused on split times distance markers, targets. If you're doing trainer road, you're looking at that little yellow line going across to where the next interval is. That's still associative, but it's external. Then you have dissociative internal. So that's where you're not focused on what you're doing, but you're still focused inward. And that would be like a daydream or doing a mental puzzle that has nothing to do with the task at hand. (laughs) Um, And then you have dissociative external, and that's where you're not focused on the task and you're focused on something external that would be something like you're taking in the scenery for aesthetic value or you're really focused on crowds. Yeah, Jonathan. I was just, what do we call it when we're wondering which associative or which addition, like focus flavor we're currently experiencing? Confusion. <laughs> <laughs> like, whew, like we're getting, we're getting, getting inception meta. right here with this. Totally yeah, meta. Yeah. Um, well, and here, here's the best part. There's another flavor yet. There's also narrow, <laughs> narrow versus broad. So broad is you're, you're kind of taking things in as a whole. So if you imagine this is like a field of view, so a broad field of view you're aware of everything in your field of view all the way out to the edges of your peripheral vision, whereas you can be really focused on a specific point within your field of view. Your focus is the same. So in bike racing terms, having a broad focus would be sort of like when you're in the middle of the race, all of a sudden you have this sense of being able to see everything that's happening in the race at once. It's kind of a softer, broader focus of taking in the race as a whole versus a narrow focus would be some, something like how you're focused during a bridge effort. You are laser locked on the rider ahead of you that you're trying to get to. And you are very narrowly focused on the effort at hand and trying to get across that gap. So narrow versus broad, internal versus external and associative versus dissociative. (laughs) Now there's a time and place for each type of focus, but what the research has shown shown is generally speaking, and there, you know, there's a, there's a vast, vast rich literature on this. It's really interesting to dive into, but generally speaking, associative focus is the best for athletic performance, which kind of makes sense. Like anything where you have to think about your form or the task at hand, like you're probably going to be better at the task at hand when you're focused on what you're doing rather than on what you're making for dinner that night. And this is especially true of steady state events where you need a lot, a high degree of self-monitoring 
and your pacing, the pacing of your effort is key. And what they've shown is that elite athletes generally are very, very skilled, specifically at narrow associative focus. So they're really good at focusing, laser locking on exactly what it is they're doing. But the other thing that they're really good at is shifting quickly and easily from narrow to broad and then from internal to external. And this is obviously important at a bike race. You need to be able to shift from taking in the race to a whole to that narrow focus of like, oh, I have to cover this attack. You also have to shift from internal to external. So you need to focus on the negative space and how the space around you is moving and where you want to move in the field is external. And then internally monitoring the sensations of that muscle fatigue as you're bridging that effort so that you are sure that you're pacing your effort appropriately. Um, The cool thing about all of this is these are very, very trainable skills. (laughs) This is not something that you're born with. You can train yourself to be better at associative focus. You can train yourself to be better at switching back and forth between associative, dissociative, between internal, external, and narrow versus broad. And when it comes to getting getting faster on the bike, you really want to focus on associative attentional focus. And then from there, switching, training yourself to switch from internal versus external and from narrow versus broad. So the breath, again, coming back to the breathing, your breathing is a perfect tool for training this because your breathing is going to ground you in that associative attentional focus. Because if, as long as you're focused on your breath, you are focused on what you're doing. And then steady state efforts like sweet spot are a perfect opportunity to train this associative focus through breathing. And when you're on the trainer, you have a really high degree of control. So you can mess with things like your cadence, your ventilation rate is largely determined by the degree of effort that you're putting out. So the harder you're going, the narrower the range of control that you have. Like you can slow your breathing to a degree, but the range of of possibilities becomes narrower the harder your effort gets. But when you're doing a steady effort, if you can get into a steady rhythm of breathing, it can actually help you pace a steady effort. And so sweet spot on the trainer, this is a great place to do this. So there's some fun things you can do to play around with this. So I would suggest that, and again, these are just um, some examples and suggestions. There's a lot that you can do with this. And I'm sure that some of the reading that Chad has recommended will, some of the exercises he mentioned in this book are probably along these lines. Uh, but start with observations. So get into a rhythm in that sweet spot effort by counting and breathing in time. So get a sense for like, how often are you breathing and start counting with your breath to see what's just your natural rhythm of breathing when you're in that effort. And then try slowing it a little bit, just a little bit by breathing a little bit deeper and see how that changes your internal sensations, internal focus, or try speeding it up slightly and see how that changes those sensations. Do you feel calmer? Do you feel a higher or lower perceived rate of exertion? Um, If you belly breathe, do you notice a difference in your anxiety level? Uh, So just start with those observations and then there's some fun exercises you can do. So you can try timing your breathing with cadence. Um, If you're doing this, I suggest focusing on your exhale rather than on your inhale. Again, this goes back to what Chad was saying about um, the inhale being, or the exhale, part, part of the reason you want to focus on the exhale is generally speaking, it's the, the carbon dioxide that you're breathing off. That's going to contr- have a lot of, a lot to do with your ventilation rate, but just for the, these purposes, it's not a big diff- deal either way, but I would suggest focusing on your exhale, but try timing your breathing with your cadence. So in sweet spot, you might breathe at a rate of let's say 30 times per minute. If you wanted to simulate a climb during a sweet spot interval and have like a really low uh, cadence of, let's say, 60, then you'd be breathing every other pedal stroke. 
but then you can try mixing it up. Mix up your cadence, mix up your breathing rate, try alternating sides so you're emphasizing both left and right pedal stroke. Um, we used to do this in swimming. We call it alternate breathing because if you only ever breathe the one side, you can get a little bit lopsided in terms of your, your form. Uh, but you can also try um, experimenting with noticing changes in your internal state. So does a slower, you know, again, does slower breathing affect your mood, your anxiety level? Um, if you notice that you're kind of have a lot of tension in your shoulders, does some belly breathing help you relax and bring that down again? And then shift between narrow focus. Um, so that's internal. And then shift your focus out again to something external, like looking at the screen, looking at uh, how your knees are tracking on the bike, picking a point on the wall. Um, and then you can shift between narrow focus and broad focus. So narrow focus would be like, if you're on train road, like focusing on that little yellow line um, and then shifting back out to a broad focus. A broad focus, a way of doing this on the trainer would be just to, to, to try to imagine the shape occupied by the empty space in your room, which is kind of a funny mental exercise, but it's a way of opening your focus and being broadening and softening that focus and then shifting between that and then going back into a really narrow focus. And the whole time you're doing this, you want to keep tabs on your breathing. So keep counting your breaths, keep maybe breathing in time with your cadence, whatever that is. And then the other thing you can do is instead of counting your breaths, you can always try substituting counting with a mantra and see if that helps and experiment with different mantras. But these are all things that can help you um, tap into a good mental state that will then in turn help your performance. And the key is that the breathing is grounding you in that associative attentional focus state, which is super important. So all of this is, is to, the goal of this is not to like identify what your perfect sweet spot ventilation rate is. There's no such thing. There's no, there's no perfect rate of ventilation for any given effort. But what it is doing is it's just teaching you uh, more about how to focus. So you're, you're, you're training that attentional focus, that skill set. You are learning how to modulate where you are on that sympathetic parasympathetic ladder with your breath. And the whole time you're doing this, you're training all of those muscles, just like Chad said. <laughs> so it's kind of a nice, it's, it's kind of like a nice all in one. And again, that sweet spot, those steady state efforts on the trainer are such a good time to try and just experiment with this. It's funny how it's an automatic function of our bodies, right? To breathe yet. There's so much low <clears throat> fruit, even with that. And, and when we train, I think like a lot of it goes by forcefully, but this is something I've noticed with my wife, like when she first started training and doing everything else, cause she hadn't done, it was a lot of stop and stop and start sports. So, um, whether it was dance, basketball, softball, stuff like that, it was like a lot of more like stop and start. And in this case, it just kept going. And within that, did she experience the fact like, Hey, I need to actually think about how I breathe because uh, I don't, you know, I don't seem to be managing it well. So this is awesome. Uh, a ton of great information. I'm going to wrap it up, uh, basically just coming back up to your main questions, Avery. So basically, uh, the main question of what's the most efficient way to breathe that's individual, but it's trainable. And as you train more and as you focus on it more and shift your focus, I bet that you'll find ideal ones and that could change and evolve over time. Uh, it's going to depend on the day, on the intensity and everything else in terms of nose, <clears throat> forgive me, nose versus mouth. 
well, listen to episode 187, but we basically covered the fact that, that breathing in the nose doesn't bring in more oxygen. Uh, breathing in the mouth doesn't bring in less oxygen. Uh, what it really is is a, a tactic, like Amber said, that a lot of people use to calm and control their breathing when they breathe through the nose rather than just uh, all of us, like when we're in a, a VO2 interval and just open mouth breathing, gasping for air and trying to survive. So it's probably more of a control suggestion that you got from there. Um, so hopefully that, that gives you some, some very specific and, and scientific backing behind all of that. Um, last thing to add to this, <laughs> we had a group of new employees that started here and they were actually just outside my office door at a group of, uh, desks that were out there. And I had, uh, man, can't remember the name of the workout, but it was, it was a hard three minute VO two intervals that I was doing. And I remember when I came out, like everyone looked at me just like, like <laughs> cause they, a lot of them hadn't been around, you know, cyclist training or anything like that before. And they were like looking at, and one of them had the courage to be like, are you okay? And I was like, oh yeah, that was great. That's a great workout. You know? So, uh, once again, listen to our ramp test, <laughs> just, just take that last minute. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so it, that just goes to prove the fact that we normalize all of this and we probably take it for granted, but there's a whole lot more to specific breathing and everything else. And we just kind of get used to it. Um, this is going to be the last question that we address here coming up uh, from Steph. And then we're going to answer some of the live questions that you're submitting and you've submitted a ton of them so far. Please keep submitting them. And producer Tucker is actually putting them in our docs so then we can scan through and, and select as many as we can answer. Uh, but let's get to Steph's question. She says, Hey there, I subscribed to trainer road about a year ago. And although I haven't followed the plans to a T it's great to have somewhere to store all of my information. And I just started using the calendar to track nutrition and sleep notes. Even partly following workouts has helped a huge amount with cadence, mindfulness, and learning how to suffer. Awesome. Steph, good to hear it. Uh, she says, my questions are mostly for Amber. And I'd, I'd say that these are probably entirely for Amber. So yeah, there we go. That's an easy uh, podcast. I know. Let's just leave. Uh, <laughs> uh, so she says, number one, and, and Amber, do you want to answer these one by one or go and read them all and then go into it? Why don't you go ahead and read them all and then I'll, I'll tackle them one by one. Cool. She says, what do you think are the biggest differences between men's and women's fields in terms of etiquette and tactics? Number two, what are the biggest pieces of advice, if any, uh, on training or nutrition that you've heard or read that don't take women into consideration? Number three, what are your favorite ways to recover? She says, I love all the men in my cycling life, but I can't help but think there are some big differences in our races and physiology that makes some of their advice inapplicable to me. For instance, I tried a true or the tried and true expectation of criterium racing I've heard is it's going to be really fast for the last two laps. But that doesn't seem to hold up in my races, although I do still see it in men's races. Is it just the races I'm in? Or is it part of the world I live in? And do tactics vary by region? She mentions, it always seems with three laps to go that the whole field slows down to a mosey pace. Attack. My experience is... <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, seriously. I like, yeah. I like how it was almost like a Pavlovian response. It's yeah. like, oh, like... <laughs> so, so, pace slow to attack. If they slow down and you're in the back, slingshot by. I don't know if that holds true in women's racing, but that's just like, this should be put in your brain. Nate's excited to do it. I know. Right I'm, now. He's just talking about. I'm gonna it. go find. I'm gonna follow someone out on the road. Social distancing. Be like, as soon as they slow down, I'm gonna come in their draft. Give them the look. Drop them six feet apart. 
<laughs> oh, that's amazing. Bike racers are starved. Uh, she says, um, so she says, I'll usually be the aggressive rider in a small field of 10 or less people due to frustration that it's going so slow and I'll do well. But when the fields are larger and high caliber, my fitness isn't strong enough to accelerate the speed. And then she says, and survive to the end. Uh, would love any criterium advice you have, Amber. Thanks so much. And thanks for bringing Amber on. She's a gem. Aww. Uh, we agree. So, and, and first thanks of all, so thank you. It's uh, Amber. We love having you on the podcast. It's awesome. You bring so much to it. And thank you uh, so much for female listeners that listen to this podcast. This, this sport is, is, is regrettably one-sided heavily, like lopsided in terms of like, when you look at the demographics, you know, we're, we're actually not as high as some people say, but it's not uncommon for brands to be 90% male, 10% female in this, in this world. So it's like, for us, we really want to help make a change in that. And it's been, I have noticed a marked increase in questions submitted, and I'm absolutely sure it's because of you, Amber, but uh, questions submitted to the podcast from females. So um, and with that, I, 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 I hope that we never drift into anything close to mansplaining or anything else like that. Um, because like you're pointing out here, Steph, it's entirely different, uh, for different individuals. So first question, Amber, uh, what do you think of the biggest differences between men's and women's fields in terms of etiquette and tactics? I love this question because the bottom line is the, the, the actual tactics and etiquette, it's exactly the same. So all of the principles are exactly the same. Um, all of the ways that you can be a good wheel, same for men, same for women. There really aren't any differences in terms of what it means to be a good wheel. And there aren't really any differences in terms of the tactical principles that you would apply in racing. Where the differences arise is that the, the constraints in men's races are different than the constraints in women's races. And so when you have different constraints, you need to apply those tactics differently. And that's for tactics. But on the on the etiquette side, um, let me just say, so I don't, we could review some etiquette stuff, but I mean, I'll just pick off a few that I have here on a list, like just random things that are, you know, etiquette things and races. But again, these apply equally for men and women. So um, you want to hold your line in a sprint, like don't come off your line to block somebody from coming around you. Like that's a really basic etiquette thing. And it's the same for men and women, you know, don't attack in the feed zone. This is an etiquette thing for men and women. And, you know, not everybody abides by this, but this is, I mean, these are the things that, you know, really should be, um, kind of should be, uh, uh, should be a part of everybody's approach to racing. Um, physical contact is not cool. It's just not, I mean, <laughs> there are some limited cases where it becomes necessary because there's some fumble in the field. And I'll say like, even in the world tour, physical contact only happens very rarely and only in very limited circumstances. So generally speaking, it's just not cool. And it's the same for men as it is for women. Brake checking, never cool. Same for men, same for women. Generally, just good sportsmanship is always appreciated. Um, and I could go on and on about this, but the point is the etiquette rules are the same for men and women. What I will say is that the particular transgressions of etiquette are probably very different in men's fields than they are in women's fields. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because every single lap at Valley of the Sun, just like full testosterone rate attacks were going on in the feed zone. Just like 
every single laugh. I was like, come on, I thought we were supposed to do this, but gosh, it was yeah, yeah just brutal. The testosterone <laughs> effect is real and that I know I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but um, sometimes stereotypes exist for a reason and we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, and, and that said, like, exceptions to everything. So I've seen my fair share of headbutting, even punching, body checking and cussing in more languages than I can count. Uh, but generally speaking, I think the transgressions of those etiquette rules, um, even though the rules themselves are the same, how they're being broken in the different fields is probably quite different from men's fields versus women's fields. And I will also say that those trans transgressions also differ, differ between the U.S. and Europe. So there is a regional component to this as well as a gender component to this. Um, but it really just, I mean, it depends on the group dynamics of where you are, who's in the field. Um, and again, that testosterone effect is, it is real. So <laughs> tactics, similarly, it's the same principles, but again, you have different constraints that lead you to need to apply the tactics in different way, right, ways. So for men and women, every race demands the deployment of a unique combination of tactics because every race is different. So even if you're doing the same race every year, you're gonna have a different field. Your fitness is gonna be different as is the fitness of everybody else in the field. The weather is gonna be different. The wind is gonna be different. You're on different equipment. All of these things mean that every single race you do is different. So even though you were applying the same tactical principles, the way that you apply those in given circumstances is going to change depending on the circumstances of the race. So let's look at some of those different constraints. Women's races tend to have smaller fields. This, especially when you're looking at smaller local and regional races, means that you almost, you, it's very rare that you even have teams. So you almost always have a collection of individuals who are not employing team tactics in a race, which that's a huge constraint already. And then you have fewer matches to burn. So if you don't have a team of, let's say, six riders who are all racing for one athlete, that's, that's, that's a lot of matches that you don't have to burn. So when you're racing as an individual, you just have fewer matches to burn. And when you have a collection of individuals, there are just fewer matches to burn in the race as a whole. Um, shorter distances. Some women's races tend to be, even especially in criteriums, they tend to be shorter time. Like even if it's a time, our races are usually like 45 minutes to 50 minutes plus a lap. It's a lot shorter than a lot of the men's races, which can be over an hour, hour and a half. Um, so the shorter distance, the shorter distances demand those impose different constraints for women as well. Um, and then again, like we don't have those testosterone driven dynamics um, that a lot of the men's races do. So I'll just share a quick story. We had a director sportif one year who came over from the men's side of the sport, was directing us at one of our first races uh, during the season. And we were on a circuit that was, um, it was a circuit race and there was a really, really steep hill in it. So it was going to, the power demands of that hill were astronomical, which again, impact the tactics of how one is going to apply your tactical principles in the race. Anyway, this DS was coming from the men's side of things. What he wanted to do, his goal was to initiate a flurry of attacks, like get the whole field just on a wave of attacking after attacking after attacking. And apparently in men's races, all you have to do is throw down a couple of attacks and <laughs> the field verified. On the women's side, it's not like that. We don't have that like testosterone chip thing going on on the shoulder it's more like so the ds instructed us he said okay i want you two to attack and that's going to get the field going and then we'll do xyz well it was funny because we all kind of looked at each other like 
I don't think that's really ever happened in the history of women's racing. Like, you know, we, it's the dynamics are just different. So we did attack and the rest of the field just looked at us like you guys are freaking crazy because like you're wasting all of these Watts when you're going to have to put out all this power on this steep pitch that's coming up every lap. And sure enough, nobody countered us and we just attacked ourselves silly until we were dead and couldn't make up the hill anymore. And it was a big bust. Um, but that's an example of the tactical principle is the same, but the application and the outcome is going to be really different because the constraints are different. The dynamics are different. Um, so I want to just address what you said about being fast in the last two laps, because this is a really interesting point that I think illustrates a lot of what I'm talking about. So for a race to go fast in the last two laps, someone has to create that speed. So if you have a bigger field, you have higher speed because number one, you have more total horsepower in the race. You just have more engines putting out Watts, right? You also have more room to surf and recover. So let's say you did an effort. If you did an effort and you got caught and you floated back in the field, the field's pretty long. So as you're floating back through the field, you're st you have a long way where you're still getting draft and you have a lot of opportunity to jump back in that draft and recover. In other words, you have a lot more places to hide. So you also, when you have a bigger field, it's more likely that you're going to have teams with teammates. So you're going to have teams that have teammates that are willing to go on the attack to lift the speed because they're not going for the finish. They're setting up a teammate. So that's another way that you can have that higher speed at the end of a race where um, it's more likely and it's easier to do when you have a bigger field in those last, those closing laps of a race. In a women's race, we have a really small field. I mean, imagine a race where, like you're saying, you only have 10 riders. I'm guessing they're not teammates. So there's a much bigger risk for those late race, those late race efforts. It's easier to get dropped because if you go on the attack and you get caught and there's only nine people chasing you, there's not a lot of draft to jump back into and recover and be able to take a crack at the finish line again. So it's a much higher risk to put down an attack. Um, and there's also a higher psychological risk. Let's say you do put down that attack and that you get caught. It's really the chances of you recovering enough to, to contest the finish again without getting dropped are pretty low if you've really committed to that effort. And so visually it's so much more obvious that you're getting dropped from the field than if you're in a field if you're if you're in a field of 10 versus if you're a dude you throw down some crazy attack you've got 50 people in the field and you drift back through the field it's not as visually obvious that you got dropped and there's a still a good chance that you can just catch in at the tail end and finish with the group so there's a higher risk tactically but there's also a higher psychological risk to it which is part of why i think women do slow down in those closing laps of a race because tactically, the the risk, the, the cost-benefit ratio is very, very different when you're in a small field. So I'm not at all surprised by that. And it doesn't mean that the women aren't racing appropriately or they're not racing tactically. They're applying the same exact tactics appropriately to different constraints. So when you're talking about going to those bigger races, like you mentioned, you said when the fields are larger and a higher caliber, my fitness isn't strong enough to accelerate the speed and survive to the end. Um, I have a feeling it has less to do with your fitness and more to do with the fact that you're in a bigger group that can hold higher speed. And that's because when you're in a bigger field with faster speed, that faster speed is going to amplify the cost of even small mistakes. So we talk about the accordion effect of like going through corners. If you're not in the top third of the field, you're really going to have to slow down and hit the brakes going into the turn, which means you're going to have to really reaccelerate harder coming out the turn. And that taxes you so much over the course of a race 
that it doesn't like, even if your fitness is really good, if you're not positioning yourself well, you're going to be wasting a lot of energy and it's going to make it so much harder to get to the finished. So there's a skill component of that, that there's a higher demand of skill that comes with that bigger field and that higher speed. And then not to mention the fact that all of that positioning, more riders, more speed, that's all going to increase your cognitive load, which is going to be sapping your energy stores as well. So my guess is that it's less to do with your fitness and more to do with the cognitive load and the skill set that demanding different things of you because of these different constraints that is really what's making it more difficult to get to the end of the race. So you can increase your fitness, right? So that when you're making those mistakes and they're costing you, um, you, you can really, you, you have more buffer to weather those mistakes, but also working on skills will help you do more with, with the, fit, the fitness you have. So I wouldn't, you know, don't, don't get too down on your fitness per se. Just know that there's a lot of other demands that come with racing in a bigger, faster field. Um, and that, you know, are going to be drawing on other resources, mental, positional skills wise that don't necessarily have to do with your fitness. Um, Amber, everything you just said rings totally true to men's racing too. And there's, there's, there's so many times where you race an 11 person field in 35 plus four or five and the exact same stuff happens. Um, and my note, so I've raced a bunch of different categories and the difference it's so true is the, the P one, two, there's the team. So it is, it is fast the whole time at the end. And what they're trying to do is make sure that that slingshot doesn't happen. They don't want anyone to slingshot and get a gap. Is that the same in women's pro racing when they're going fast at the end? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, and two, when you say that, like, you know, you attack, if there's a the slow down and you attack solo and there's a bunch of individuals, this is, happens in a men's breakaway too, where maybe it's more likely that they, them in the pack, they look at each other. Mm-hmm. Is that, that happened too? Because if they bridge that, what happens is, uh, they are then too tired for the finish if they close that gap and then someone else will win where it's a teammate. Same thing. Yep, exactly. And so this is a perfect illustration. It's not about men versus women. It's about using the same tactical principles and applying them differently depending on the constraints. So would it be fair to say then too, if it's a, I say anyone who's racing a smaller field and it's individuals. And I think even if they have the same Jersey and our experience on the men's side, maybe this is different than the female (laughs) side, but on the men's side, if they have the same Jersey and they're in like cat four, they're not a team. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just a bunch of individuals. <laughs> Is that happen in women's racing too? Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah, oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, you might have teammates and they're not, but they're racing as individuals. So tactically speaking, it's you're in a, in a field for full of in, individuals. So, so Riza in the chat said, Nate, you're the problem on this because I, I talked about the <laughs> counter attack, which is fine, <laughs> but I want to go back to that. Cause she's like implying that what I said was not correct. If it's a lap or two to go, the field slows down and you can slingshot past and it's a bunch of individuals and it's a small race and that's a good power profile. You're not like a sprinter. Is that a good move or not? Totally a good move. Totally a good move. And the reason it's a good move is like you said, if it's a bunch of individuals, you don't have teammates that are specifically there to sacrifice themselves for somebody else. So that means that anybody committing to chase you is having to take on that risk of, is this the right use of my energy? So people are going to look at each other and they're going to wait for somebody else to, to start the chase, which will give you an advantage. Um, so, and the other thing is, you know, especially if you're attacking from the back, you get that element of surprise. It's, it's definitely, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think that the drawback and the reason we don't see the more of that happening is because there is that higher psychological risk of 
if this doesn't work out, it's going to feel really embarrassing because, and let me be clear, it's not embarrassing. If you get dropped because cool. you threw down a monster attack, you know, good on you. Like you committed to it. And I, but I, you know, I, I understand that feeling. I, I get it. But just remember, like racing is for fun. Racing is for trying things and seeing what works. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And it's, you know, yes, it's a little bit harder to do that in front of a crowd, but honestly, like no one's going to judge you harshly for that. They're what they're going to judge is they're going to appreciate the courage of that move. Not, you know, think less of you because you happen yeah. to get dropped. It, sorry, John, let me just say this. I think it's like two different uh, mindsets. One is racing not to get dropped and one is racing mm -hmm. to win. And if you race to win, you're going to get dropped sometime. And if you never yes. get dropped in a race, you're, you're most likely either in the wrong category or you're not racing to win. If you're, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That's, that's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I was going to add to this, that, that just kind of what you were just saying there, Amber, as far as what other people think of, of your moves in a race that does control probably too much of what we do in a race. A lot of the time, especially, you know, if you're like have cameras on your bike and you're going to have people watching your races on YouTube, uh, you know, ask me how I know, but <laughs> that <laughs> this, like it definitely controls the way we do things and it probably shouldn't. This is just for everybody because the one thing that I've found is like, like you said, Amber, there are certain principles that govern success in a race. Like they're always there. Circumstances change. And then that changes how we use those principles. But it's really hard to sit from the sidelines and then say exactly what should have been done. And just to say like, oh, well, you, I don't know why you did this. You should have done that. And I see that a ton with women's racing. Mm -hmm. Men always say like, women don't know how to race. They weren't doing the moves that I would do, right? Because <laughs> I can see this race on the outside in, and I know exactly what should have happened. And men do this with men's racing. I'm sure women do it with women's racing too. The, the point that I'm getting at is it's really tough to know what the right decision was for each person because it's evolving and changing so rapidly. And, and there's certain things that we just don't pick up on. And it's funny, we've noticed that when we do race analysis and we all sit down to then talk about the race, and we get insight from the racer when we actually see that. And we're like, oh, that's why. Like mm -hmm. just watching it from the outside in, I was wondering why that happened or why you didn't do X. But now I see why you did this or, oh, it turns out that that was a good decision or something else. So um, I'll just take kind of like a harsh position. Dudes, quit looking at women's <laughs> racing and saying like, they just don't race right. I, you know, they should have done this and this because that's what I would have done. Like enough with the mansplaining on that. Um <laughs> On the next question that she has, what are the biggest pieces of it? Oh, Nate, I, I just have, yeah, because I love tactics. I think you know this. The, <laughs> yeah. the one thing too that I think is unique to women's racing at the amateur level that I see in Northern California is like the P12 or P213 race will have maybe 10, 11 riders, but three of them will be on a pro Connie team and they <laughs> race tactically. And I don't know how you beat that. Like when I see that and it's a real team, like, I feel so bad for the other woman in that race because they they always have somebody off the front and then they're either like sitting on the front soft pedaling or they're just like letting other people do the work and it's, and then they counter and it's, it's like, do you have any tips on that, Amber? It's hard to race against, but it's an amazing way to learn. And you know, again, you can just use it as a learning opportunity. Try something. If it doesn't work next time, try something else. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bike race. It's not, you know, this is there will be more bike races. And if it doesn't work out, you've learned something, you know, and if it does work out, you've learned something potentially more valuable. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, and I think it's fun to watch. And then, um, to your point, Jonathan, I think it's, this applies in both cases is actually 
you know, debriefing after a race can be really helpful. So sometimes somebody who is watching your race from the outside looking in might notice something that you didn't, but it has to be a two-way conversation because you need to have both sides of that perspective. So, you know, mansplaining is where you're just like, oh, you should have done this or just do this. And actually I did a, a clinic with Mo Bruno Roy, who's a former cyclocross pro. And she had this brilliant point about the word just, it's so annoying because it just, it just, <laughs> it invalidates all of the struggle, all of, you know, so if, if you, if you just watch somebody race a, a bike race and you say, oh, you just should have done this. Are, I mean, are you joking? Yeah. It invalidates yeah. every, every struggle, every decision that was made, everything, you know, that was difficult about that thing. And just, it just railroads it. And so, you know, acknowledge the fact that everybody in the race is doing the best that they can. Everybody is making the best decision with the information available to them at that time. And then the debrief, you can learn a lot from it, but again, it has to be a two-way conversation about it. And it's not, you know, you're never going to come up with like the right answer, but there can be some learnings from that conversation. And to your point, Nate, if you're racing with a bunch of pros, go and talk to them after the race. Hey, I noticed you did this thing. I'm not really, you know, I, I didn't really understand why you did it at the time. Can you explain it to me? Man, you can learn a lot from that. It'd be, you know, it, it is hard to race against, but again, great learning opportunity. And in, in that situation, and it's going to be depending on what kind of rider you are, but if that happened in the men's field, Amber, I want your opinion on this. What I would do is try to be in the breakaway with that solo rider and then pretend like that I'm just happy to be here and I'm barely holding on the whole time. Um, cause I don't want that rider to like, just sit on my wheel. Cause that would be, that's like to like negative, they call that like negative racing where they would just sit on my wheel mm -hmm. and waiting for a solo. Um, and hopefully they think that they can beat me at the finish, but that might get you top two. And then hopefully, I don't know, what, what, what would you there do in you that go. situation? I would, I would, I would probably do that because the team is controlling the race essentially. So whether or not they're going to allow you to stay in that break and let that break go is going to depend largely on whether you're willing to work it. So you'd better be willing to work it. But <laughs> I think, it, you know, in that, in that scenario, it's best if, if they totally underestimate you. So you might want to pretend to pedal squares, drag your tongue on the road, you know, drink a lot, eat a lot, um, kind of pretend like you're really in the box, but boy, you're committed to being here because you're just so psyched to be in a break with a pro. And then, bust out your moves at the end. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're not willing to work that break and there's three of them in the field and they're the only team there and they're really strong, they have no problem bringing that, letting that come back and trying to reshuffle and get a break that'll go with somebody who will work. So that's probably what I would do. I want to race so bad now. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> so her question, what are the biggest pieces of advice, if any, uh, for training or nutrition that you've heard or read that don't take women into consideration? Oh, there's so much. Um, <laughs> there's so much. But the, the, the good thing is like, again, you know, even going back to this discussion of tactics and etiquette, like most of these things just apply across the board. We all have mitochondria that are going to get more efficient when we train. We all have cardiovascular systems that are going to respond and adapt to higher training. Load. Like most things um, generally do apply. So there are some things that are very different. And the first thing I would say is just in general, if you're getting advice from anyone, including me, uh, consider the source and take it with a grain of salt. So um, just because somebody gives you advice about a race or how to train or what to eat, um, you know, really consider the source. It doesn't mean that it's something that you need to do. You're welcome to take it into consideration. You're welcome to try it and see if it works for you. But just know that there's no secret formula. No one has all the answers. 
Um, and just, you know, get curious about your own process and figure out what's going to work for you. Uh, so some more specific points that I've, I've noticed is if you're a bike racer, which you are train for your races, uh, women's races don't tend to be that long. So there's no need to go ride six hours. If your longest race is going to be three hours. And that's assuming that you do road racing. If you just do crits and your races are 45 to 50 minutes and they're all going to be under an hour, you know, the volume that you need to train is considerably lower than it would be for guys who might be doing races up to four hours. I know there's lots of bros that like to flex with big epic distances. Um, and honestly, big epic rides can be super fun. They're like a really fun adventure. It could be a really fun way to mix it up mentally, but just know that it's not an effective training strategy for you. And so you don't necessarily need to be doing the kind of volume that men are doing, especially since their race distances are longer. Um, the other one that I see a lot, and this does apply to men and women, but I think on the women's side in particular, I'll just say you don't have to have a certain body type or shape to win bike races. Um, women in particular, I think even more so than men, our bodies do not conform to the norms of what we consider a stereotypical cyclist body. And when you look at even the top women at the world tour level, they are all kinds of shapes, all kinds of heights, all kinds of sizes, and you can make it work. So, you know, train your engine, train your mind, focus on training that race intuition, but chase performance and not a certain shape or a certain number on the scale. I think this is really, really important for women. Um, another one that's making the rounds on the internet. Um, we've talked about this, um, inter intermittent fasting is a big thing right now. It doesn't work for women the same way that it does for men because of our different hormonal landscape. It doesn't, and I'm not saying it's not going to work for you. It's just that you really need to take it with a grain of salt. And just because some of your training buddies might be doing intermittent fasting and having really great results with it, it doesn't mean it's going to affect you in the same way. So again, you really need to consider the source, do some homework on this. Um, if you want to try it, try it. But again, don't expect to have the same results as men. The other one, your menstrual cycle affects your training. And even if you don't get a regular period or you don't get a period, those monthly fluctuations in hormones will affect your training. This is not something that's going to make or break a race. It doesn't necessarily have to make or break a training session even, uh, but there is an effect. And so it's worth taking time to track that and, and learning about your body and how that does affect you and how that might, you know, how it might affect how your body responds to training. So those are some kind of key points I'll say, um, Probably a lot more, but <laughs> Amber, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I wish someone would build yes. that into their software. That'd be so awesome. Wouldn't that, that be amazing coming. if you could track your cycle? I'm gonna and your unplug this cord place? right now. Unplug this cord. Adjust your training. Yeah. Moving on. What, what are your favorite ways to recover? Um. So I'm gonna. I'm thinking like in terms of when I'm in a really heavy training block, what I really, really want, uh, what I really need for recovery. And honestly, my number, absolute number one favorite way to recover is laughing. And that sounds silly, but it is it just, it's amazing, right? It's instant antidote for fatigue, for anxiety, for, I mean, it just, it pulls you out of taking yourself too seriously. And it's awesome. Your husband's uh, so super funny. So I think now I know why you married him. He's got this like dry, sarcastic wit where you're like, yes. are you telling a joke right now? But he is. And it's super funny. <laughs> he is. He's great. Yeah, he's awesome. he's like my 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 recovery secret weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is one of the reasons why I love racing with Pete so much. Pete and I have this strange connection. It's weird. 
uh, call it bromance, whatever else. But we have like this, like we think the same thoughts and it's creepy. Um, our wives have pointed this out before. We even both have the same exact bike now. It's it's turquoise. It's the same model. It's everything. So it, it's a bit creepy. But like when racing with Pete, I always know that I can look to Pete for a little bit of a break from the race in terms of like the, and I can, and have a moment of levity amidst the chaos of a race. And it's, it is so helpful. That's a really like, and, and I, I've never thought of that very thing, but when you're talking about these, like, because recovery operates on different scales, like mm-hmm. in between even efforts, yeah, it's super helpful. Even in the middle of a race, cracking a joke with somebody, it can just break the tension immediately. And it, it can be all you need in that moment to just totally recover from whatever effort you just did. I think that's why group workouts are so good too, like having friends <laughs> totally. because like, like I, I remember people and those sort of things, <laughs> like, you know, it's been so long, but, um, but that's like, it's, I, I feel like that's another reason why it's so helpful to have friends, uh, that you're uh, training with, that you're racing with that sort of a thing. It's always just so nice to have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So my second favorite way to recover is sleep. Um, again, nothing fancy, but it is, it is number one. And boy, do I feel it when, well, boy, do I feel it? And so does everyone around me <laughs> when I don't get enough sleep. Uh, it's as much to benefit everyone else as it is to benefit me. And then just, I, I do really like basic foam rolling and soft tissue work with a tennis ball. So nothing super fancy. And then if I'm in the middle of a stage race and I'm looking to recover kind of between stages, what I really like is just bubble gum for the brain, just dumb TV shows, easy reading books, anything that just kind of Let's me escape from the bike world and tune out in a way that's really just low, low, low cognitive low, just mentally resetting and recovering. Um, and I'll just point out last week's podcast went into some really good recovery mo- modalities too. So that's a good, good thing to check out as well. But those would probably be my top ones. Awesome. Yeah, it doesn't have to be something crazy. It's not some sort of device. Nothing, you know, like I think that that's the hard thing is a lot of the time we think that something is just a purchase away. Yeah. And, or something is just like, or that, that Holy grail is just like a, a, a personal change away. Mm-hmm. But in many cases we have it within our, within our grasp, you know, it's just more about putting it in place and, it's and the cornerstone and right. of consumerism, right? If you just have this one thing, it's, it's, it's like fight club, right? Like I finally yeah. got that coffee table thing figured out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Um, thanks, Amber, for, for all the all the insight on that one. Oh, that was a great um, question. That was a really good one. Totally. And remember, you can submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And, and so many of you do it every week, hundreds of you, and it's so cool uh, to get, in fact, more than more to do that. But it's just awesome. So really appreciate it. It's hard to go through them all, but I do. Um, so thank you so much for doing it. Uh, before we go into the live questions, beers with Chad, remember tomorrow, that's Friday at 2 PM Pacific on Instagram. You should totally go on Instagram if you're not, and you should join us there. It's a ton of fun. Uh, this week, like we talked about already, it's going to be Chad and I, uh, doing it, but we're going to cover a few things cause there's a recurring question that comes up with, uh, Nate's hair versus my hair and which one Chad wants more. <laughs> and I'm about to, and, and on beers with Chad tomorrow, I'm going to put a nail in that coffin and, and we're going to show why you would always want to have my hair. I want, I want you to wear a heart rate monitor, Jonathan. And then like Pete and I will be in the comments trying to see like who can get your heart rate higher. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, John, are you going to shave your head? Uh, no, but you should, I haven't think (laughs) this is how rumors get started. (laughs) Oh man, here we go. Um, 
Yeah, maybe if I can find some sort of worthy cause to donate for, for something like that. I don't know. You know what I mean? Cause I'll give you 10 bucks. I think that... Your, ch- your, <laughs> your charity of choice. Don't be vain, John. Far too... <laughs> Far too many people care about my hair, so we should probably use that object of attention. We could sell it, we'll donate it. Someone can have it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exactly. thinking about self haircuts. You gonna do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the big secret: I do cut my own hair um, in most cases. So, yeah. Me too. <laughs> 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 that was great, chat. That was solid. Okay, uh, getting into some of the questions. This one's from Pablo. Uh, and by the way, when you come to Beers with Chad, only bring your most vexing, aka silly and ridiculous silly. questions. Yeah. Um, that we, we don't answer a lot. We don't answer training questions. They're just fun ones. So yeah. it's a happy hour. And, and you can watch too. on the website now. I, I, I mean, I never. John and I blew our minds. You don't have to use the app. You can uh, watch yes. it live on the Instagram.com webpage. Yeah, I think that all you need is an. Ins- I think that you need an Instagram account to watch a, a live uh, stream. But um, yeah, it's all you and need. So and you can find us at Trainer Road. I know this sounds silly, but please follow me because I'm trying to get to ten thousand so I can do like special links in my posts, which I think <laughs> I could share information. But tr.nate. Sure. Like normally it's, it's a joke, yeah, but should- now I'm really asking for it because I really want to get to ten thousand <laughs> to be able to. Let's do it. That. Let's rally for Nate. Um, well, and we'll come up with some challenge for shaving my head. Podcast listeners, I put it in your hands. Let's come up with something that uh, needs Ooh. to happen for me to shave my head or something. Person like with the lowest with the lowest FTP shaves their head that's not already shaved at the next oh, ramp test. I am increase your no, no, just lowest FTP. <laughs> Who's the guy? Who's doesn't have? Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's either me or Pete. Right. Whoever has the lowest FTP at the ramp test. Well. Okay, well, I'm going to be lower than you. I'm confused. I know. You would ask Pete to shave those locks? Pete's going to... Yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> so Pete's going to be that's 360, like I'm going to be 360, and John's going to be 320. So That's that's like Norse lore there. You can't take <laughs> yeah. away Pete, Thor's hair. He's not so. going to lose. That's what I'm saying. This is a rigged contest, everyone. No one gets it. Okay. So everybody, this is a taste of beers with chat. <laughs> nonsense. So uh, you can join us for more of it uh, tomorrow. That's going to be Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific is when we do it. So, okay. Pablo's question. Uh, the, these days I'm doing much more weight training like squats and lunges. Would you recommend doing a hard session on the bike while you are still sore or a keep to zone two until the doms are gone? So really common question that we get in terms of how to pair strength training with lifting yeah. or strength training with cycling. Uh, Chad, let's say you. Typically, if your muscles are sore, it means they're still effectively injured. So I would <clears throat> definitely veer toward the more cautious side there and do the easier work. Uh, I do understand the temptation to get all your hard work done on a single day. But when it comes to coupling endurance work with strength work, uh, there are basically messaging processes that take place that steer your body towards one type of adaptation. And all you're doing by throwing both types of adaptation at your body on the same day is kind of muddying those waters. So ideally, you separate that training and this is sore legs aside, separate that training by as much as you can. If you have to do it in the same day, then try to book in the day with it. Otherwise try to do it on a separate day entirely. And then, yeah, you have to keep recovery in mind. So if your muscles are sore, I mean, physically sore, no intensity really should figure into your picture until the, until they're healed. Uh, we're going long today, by the way, we're just going to keep on sending. So send button to smash and it's staying down. Uh, okay. 
Uh, next question from Rostin says, with it getting warmer and trails being dry, I keep finding myself spiking intervals and workouts, uh, spiking it, or maybe he means skipping. I'm not sure intervals and workouts to do more fun endurance rides. I'm mm. sure he means skipping. Uh, do you have any tips to help me stay structured and hit my workouts? This is a good question. Probably for each of us individually to think of, cause this is super common. So, uh, everybody goes through this temptation of you go through a lot of structure and it's easy to do when you have an environment that is built towards structure, like indoor training, right? And then when you get outside, you have an environment that is not built for structure. So you're inherently kind of like mismatching too. However, it's totally possible to match them. And Megan wrote an awesome article about how to pair and it was mountain bike, mountain biking and outside workouts, but the same principles apply. And we'll have an article coming out for road and specific things on this too, for how to pair your workout structures. But one of the things that you can do with this, uh, Ross, and this is kind of down the way from motivation, it's downstream from that, but find roads or sections of roads, something like that, that fit your interval structures, because that makes it so that if it's pretty easy to do, it's just awesome. If you have a, a long, flat, straight section of road or a big loop that has minimal interruptions, that sort of a thing, that's fantastic. If you can repeats on a climb with enough rest so that you can get to the bottom, fantastic. But Megan wrote some really good tips on how to pair certain types of terrain with certain types of workouts. Um, so that's one thing. But in terms of like uh, staying structured and motivated to do that, what tips would you all share on that? I'll go. I'm thinking. A couple of days a week, make yourself do it. There's no reason to get so far uh, removed from the structure. There just isn't. You have seven days in a week. There's no reason you can't dedicate two of those to staying inside and getting the structured workout done. I know I'm speaking from uh, from the perspective of a coach. So, of course, I'm going to say that, but I'm also speaking from the perspective of an athlete who's watched his fitness slip away every time he diverts from the structure of just a couple days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. yeah, along those along those lines too. Some workouts are best done inside. Some workouts can totally be done outside. Um, but in and and shifting kind of like what you said, Chad, is maybe you shift to a low volume plan or you just shift more workouts inside or outside. You can do all that within the mm-hmm. calendar. And you can do one of those structured workouts outside. There's no reason you can't, but he's talking about turning it into an, a fun endurance ride. And I say still maintain that structure twice a week indoors or out. Yeah. And so to the fun endurance ride, sometimes, uh, you'll see this in the weekly tips where like a Sunday could be a sweet spot ride, but Chad has an alternative outdoor aerobic ride to get, um, some sort of similar adaptations, but it, it similar. Yeah. Actually, we used to have them in the plan, but people weren't doing them. Like you, you used to prescribe a four hour indoor aerobic ride and apparently no one wants to do it. So you could do that outside <laughs> as a, as a fun aerobic ride. Just don't just, just, you have to know this in your head that if you go crazy hard and it impacts that, that next <clears throat> week or that next block, that's going to hurt your training. Um, so you just know where that governor is. And I have a really good group workout, uh, like group going right now where we're doing, you know, short power, high volume build, whatever. And, um, next week is recovery week and we're planning to all do it outside because, uh, the weather's great. I'm going to do it on the Garmin and we have roads that are good for it. And we're going to get the whole week, just easy, stay in our little zones and tool around and then come back the week after that. And that that's also to me, it's kind of cool. I'm going to try some new positions on the bike and, uh, try a shorter stem, see what works. And it's kind of things you can't really do inside. Um, and hopefully strengthen my neck and that sort of thing too. Yeah. Sure. I would just say structured training outside can also be fun. <laughs> like it, 
doesn't have to, you know, it's not like one or the other. Um, most of my career, I was doing almost almost every write in my career with very few exceptions. Was, there was some kind of structure. And it wasn't always the case that the intervals would take up the entire ride. So maybe you're doing um, a total of 60 minutes worth of structured intervals on a three-hour ride. That gives you, you know, two hours to tool around, check out some loops that you really like. Uh, and then, you know, just by virtue of the fact that you'll be doing different types of intervals that are going to demand different types of terrain, that can kind of help, like, for me at least, that was sort of what guided my route choice. So it was like, okay, today I'm doing four-minute efforts. I'm going to go over, you know, I had, you know, a handful of hills that I knew that would last about four efforts. And, okay, I'm going to go do these hills over here for this day. And then the rest of my ride, I'm going to tack on, you know, whatever loop that made sense from that point. So it can be, I mean, those kinds of constraints actually can help you get more creative with route choice. And I also think that it just has a lot to do with framing. Um, if you're just looking, you know, just because it's structured doesn't mean it can't also be fun. and can't also be an escape for you and like your time to just go out and enjoy being outdoors. It, you know, structure doesn't preclude that. So I would maybe think about kind of shifting your thinking on that a little bit. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, uh, find a spot for your intervals and find a fun way to get there. Yeah. And then find a fun way coming back. Like it's, uh, and, and to Nate's point as well, like, and I think maybe Chad, you mentioned this too. Uh, so sorry, misattribution, but, uh, a lot of this too, it comes down to you not, or making sure that you kind of control things and keep things under wraps too. So like, Basically, the way that I see this is that you have uh, all of this like anticipation to just go outside and use the fitness you have and enjoy bike riding, which you absolutely should. And you should find ways to incorporate that. Because I think that th there's another side of this where it comes to like abstinence and in certain in certain respects, like you can find yourself going into a spot where you're like so strictly adhering that you're never taking a break. And then you just have the, you go on this bender where you just completely blow away from, <laughs> from structure and you go crazy. And, and as a result, then your fitness drops and, and it's in all the work that you did is not for nothing. If that does happen, cause that happens to everybody at some point, but it certainly is much more, it, it is frustrating because you go through something where you feel like you followed your heart, so to speak, and then your heart betrays you or betrays your fitness. <laughs> and it is sad and it is hard. But I think that the key is to work it in. Like, um, that's why I kind of like having my Saturday choose your own adventure ride, because then at that point I can work in and satisfy that side of things if I want. And that may be more structure some weeks. It may be chasing a fun KOM another week. It could be anything. So it's, it's making space for you to have all the necessary components and to keep your motivation high. It's not necessarily wondering how I can fabricate motivation while depriving myself of everything and staying in one lane. It's about balance, at least for me personally. So, and also, I, I, you know, don't use this motivational tactic. I use it for myself personally. So uh, your mileage may vary, but anytime I start to do that and I start to tell myself, you don't need to do structure. You don't need to do structure. I think of the times that I've missed out by just a second on something or just a small amount. And I go, eh, I can do it and I can buckle down and I can still keep things balanced. I don't have to go you know, out of balance, but I don't want to feel that. You know what I mean? I don't want to know that I got to wherever I was supposed to be at, but I wasn't in the right position. To that point, I know a guy who lost Masters Nationals podium by like a <laughs> fraction of a second. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Imagine like, what is that one workout? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Seriously. So I, I can only imagine. <laughs> It'd be hard to live. 
don't check it don't check your mail for the next few weeks nate <laughs> chad might send something to you <laughs> he's gonna say something okay. mean tomorrow in beers with chad <laughs> yeah to be pacific yeah he'll get you you'll get you back for sure oh man uh, so uh, we're going to end on this extremely important and critical question that all of us need to know the answer to. Uh, this one's from Brennan. He says, has Nate ridden his chamois Hagar much? If so, how is he liking it? Yeah. Cause this is the most hated bicycle <laughs> by people that have not, that have no clue about it or how it rides. Cause yep. hardly anybody's ridden it, but so it's great. I, I did maybe a 45 mile ride on it on the road with WTB venture tires on it. Uh, so I need to change a few things for the setup on me. Um, so, so that this bike too, if you're going slow, it feels weird and floppy, but if you're going fast, it feels stable and really comfortable. Um, and then descending too, it actually is, it descends on the road really well. You can drop down. It feels awesome. Yeah, John. I was going to ask what is fast and slow, uh, relatively speaking, like, like what yeah, are you yeah. talking about? If you're going roughly? five miles per hour and trying to like turn around like a rock. It feels weird, like something you would do on your mountain bike. I would not do a single track mountain bike climb on this. Um, but if you're going straight, even if you're going slow straight, it's fine. It's just like the tight, a tight turn is weird. Um, and then the things that I need to change are my stem is too short. It's too, I'm too like close up and the MV wide heart handlebars with that close up, it like makes my neck really go up high. And then also it's 172.5 cranks. And I know I'm one seventy five. that's not a big deal, but I, I rode with it. My legs were thrashed and my average power I was riding with my wife was like 150 Watts and it killed my legs. Um, so I'm going to get new cranks that are longer, but, uh, everything's like out of stock right now. So I haven't been able to switch that. Um, yeah, so that's, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm excited. I'm good. And our training camp, I think I'm going to ride it with cross tires, the, or, uh, gravel tires the whole time. And then, uh, wow. after, cause I'm doing dirty Kansas after nationals air quotes, <laughs> when that happens in August, I'm going to switch and do all training on the Hagar, even on the trainer, um, up into and all outside rides too, because you can get some, I'm going to get the trigger pro specialized ones in the 42s or forties, which are kind of like a road tire in the middle. And I should be able to train dirt road it's you don't lose that many watts having the dropper on road chad knows this after hawaii it is so nice to be able to send with a dropper post on road it really um, is yeah yeah so it should be a pretty fun and it can hold three bottles it can hold a lot more than three bottles so you can do long rides and yeah anyways <laughs> just that's, bottles that's everywhere a, that's uh, yeah that's a totally thing on that's a thing on that bike it can hold many more than i think seven bottles, uh, which is crazy <laughs> it's insane yeah uh well awesome uh thanks everybody for joining us uh, once again this has been episode 257 of the ask a cycling coach podcast so you can search that on the forum find the links find the studies that we were talking to join the conversation you should go to the forum there's tons of people asking things like uh, i probably send like just yesterday i actually looked at it this morning i ended up sending seven different people to the forum based on questions that they had sent me directly on instagram so like uh it's just got so much good information so y'all should join over the there. other cool thing is it, i googled some questions about dirty kanza and our forum came up as the first answer and i read it and <laughs> yeah. it the answer. I was like, this is, yes. this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So join the forum. It's awesome over there. Uh, you can, you don't have to be a trainer road subscriber to, to be a part of the forum. Anybody can be a part of the forum. So, uh, come join us over there. It's a lot of fun and join us on beers of chat tomorrow at 2 PM Pacific. 
and and send us terrible questions and it'll be an absolute <laughs> blast and finally submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast and we will talk to you all next week at 8 a.m pacific the link to next week's episode is down in the description below if you're watching now so you can set a reminder thumbs up if you're watching this share it with your friends we'll talk to you all next week bye-bye thanks everyone bye-bye.